Hello and welcome to episode 2 of In Context, I'm Gregor Thompson and I want to start by thanking those of you who watched, liked, shared and subscribed after I posted episode 1. The feedback was much better than expected so thank you very much. For this show's main topic I thought I'd steer slightly away from the Covid crisis and speak about something new, drug policy. I know that the amount of people in favour of drug policy changes has risen rapidly so I thought it would be a good topic to provide some deeper context so that you can make an informed decision about where you stand on this issue. I will be honest here. This is my show, which means I don't have to follow any journalistic guidelines to be impartial, balanced or objective. I can say literally whatever I want, but that's not the point. I don't want you to think of me who will just say anything for the sake of it. I'm telling you this because I will cover both sides of the arguments for this topic and future topics, and I will try to be objective, however, I do have my own opinions on these topics, and if these opinions show, that's fine. I may be ill-informed before I write these episodes, but I hope that when it comes to filming and after researching, I'm better informed, and hopefully after watching or listening, this you will be too. If you think I'm wrong, or have been ill-informed, you can let me know in the comments. I'm happy to be proven wrong. However, the information I provide here will be from trusted sources, and it will be what I believe to be correct. I hope you do trust that what I say has been well thought out and researched. So with that out of the way, let's start. So drug policy. It's a very broad subject, one that I'll need a lot of time to cover, and luckily I've got a lot of that. So let's start with a policy change that's been called for for a long time. Safe drug consumption rooms. The first professionally staffed drug consumption room was introduced in the Netherlands in the early 1970s. Now there's more than 100 safe drug consumption rooms operating in 10 countries including Switzerland, Germany, the Netherlands, Norway, France, Luxembourg, Spain, Denmark, Australia and Canada. So what are these safe drug consumption rooms? They're legally sanctioned facilities where people can inject their own pre-obtained drugs under medical supervision with sterile injection equipment, a hygienic space to use drugs under medical supervision with emergency care in the event of overdose, counselling services and referrals to social and healthcare services which can offer a gateway to drug treatment. But are they effective? Well, this study showed they provide conditions, especially for regular clients, that do improve hygiene and reduce exposure to health risks such as infectious disease or overdose, and there's no evidence they increase levels of drug use or risky patterns of consumption. So this all sounds like a no-brainer, but are there any drawbacks? Well, that depends on your viewpoint and your priorities. The main one is money. Most people don't want to fund someone else's drug use, and for good reason. Safe injection sites cost money, and a lot of it which can be a huge negative factor, especially in poor areas. However, current safe injection sites actually operate at a net positive, with Vancouver's safe injection site actually saving the city an estimated $6 million in a medical and emergency costs each year after the cost of the facility. So why haven't they been introduced in Scotland, where we have the most amount of drug-related deaths per capita in Europe? For over five years, public health bodies like the NHS have been outlining the horrifying rise of HIV cases and overdose deaths, and have been recommending safe drug consumption rooms to combat this. Since the idea of safe drug consumption rooms in Scotland was first spoken about, campaigners, charities and experts have been calling for a safe drug consumption room in Glasgow. This man, Peter, Peter Crikent, a community activist, is even risking arrest to set up a safe injection facility in the back of a van for addicts in Glasgow in a desperate attempt to break the political deadlock around drug consumption rooms. So why has it come to this man setting up an illegal injection facility? Well. Frontline workers say that politicians just haven't grasped the severity of the situation. Since then, various party MPs have backed these calls via a letter to the Home Office by the All-Party Parliamentary Group for Drug Policy Reform, which includes MPs from SNP, Lib Dems, Labour and the Conservatives, urging the Home Office to sanction safe drug consumption rooms in Glasgow. 
That was last year, and the Home Office said there was no plans to open safe truck consumption rooms. More locally here in Scotland, the Scottish Affairs Committee launched an inquiry into the drivers buying drug use in April 2019, which I attended. And I'll be honest, while I was impressed by what was said, there was so much talk of radical change and the like, but realistically I didn't expect much to come from this. It was led by a group of MPs who heard evidence from organisations and individuals on a range of questions, including identifying the unique drivers of drug use in Scotland and the link between poverty and drugs. The committee published its findings in November last year. They went multiple steps further than safe drug consumption rooms. While they did recommend the introduction of these rooms, they also recommended that the UK government adopt a public health approach to drugs and transfer lead responsibility for drug policy from the Home Office to the Department for Health and Social Care. They also recommended that the UK government commit to decriminalising the possession of small amounts of drugs for personal use. And lastly, while they criticised the UK government's handling of this crisis, they also criticised the Scottish government, stating, The Scottish government is responsible for health delivery and there's undoubtedly more it could do within existing powers to address problem drug use. We believe the Scottish government should improve its response to problem drug use in areas that are already devolved and funding for drug-related health services in Scotland must be protected. So after all that, why hasn't there been at least the sanctions to introduce safe drug consumption rooms in Glasgow? The simple answer is the UK government and Home Office have refused on multiple occasions to answer calls to open these potentially life-saving clinics. Now, I want to talk specifically about how drug policy affects the people who deal with addiction, as well as those who help those in need of support. Luckily, I filmed a short documentary at university about this very topic a few years ago, which answers that very question. So here is that documentary, High Time for Change. Punishment and imprisonment is one of the worst things our society can do to us. So to warrant such punishment, justification is needed. However, is the use of drugs really a decent justification for imprisonment? I want to delve into the depths of our current drug policies in Scotland to see if they are successful at keeping us safe and creating a drug-free society. To start, I want to gain an insight into the life of a recovering drug addict. These drugs make you blank out, they, make, they blur your, your memory. Uh, when I overdosed, obviously, three months ago, I think I blanked out for a week. And I actually can't remember a whole week. Do you regret it? Oh, definitely, yeah. definitely. It's a horrible drug, actually. Uh, just, uh, I've just came off my script today, as a pal. Because, you know, it's such a cold, horrible drug, you know, and it's, it's, I've kind of, you know, after, obviously, my wee scare in that, you know, it's kind of woke me up a little bit, you know. Yeah, you know, I, I, I don't know what I was thinking. I must have thought I was invincible or something. Mm. I feel like I definitely felt like I'd been let down by the system because I remember I went to doctors when I was about 14. You know, I was like, right, there's something no right here, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, I shouldn't really be doing this, you know, I'm getting a wee bit, you know, I was alarm bells were ringing already. So it took 11 years and for me to die, clinically die, and get brought back for me to actually get help. That's what I wanted to. So it's ridiculous. Um, if I was to speak to someone who was looking for advice around, you know, uh, heroin addiction, I would discuss my the reasons why I used those drugs um, and the freedom that I got. You know, my experience withdrawing and the freedom that I got not using those drugs. I overdosed on Subutex, so it is a heroin substitute. It's like, it's kind of like methadone, but obviously it's totally different, but it's the same kind of group, you know, kind of drugs. And was that the time you went to the hospital? I think so. Yeah. And what happened before? I'm not actually sure, as I say, my memory was so blurry, but I can remember just waking up and, uh, and I, was, I was in ICU. 
I didn't obviously know it at the time, but I just woke up and obviously the state I was in, absolutely full of pre-gabalin and uh, diazepam, alcohol, uh, subutex, you know, I was just absolutely aware of it. For, you know, people who become addicted um, and who get in real trouble uh, with de severe dependency are generally seeking or needing lots of help, you know, around traumatic issues. And for the most part, you know, those are um, abuse and neglect, you know, a variety of different traumatic experiences that um, humans have um, and drugs are very, as they were for me, a solution. It's clear that the help provided for drug dependency is insufficient. So what's wrong with the way we deal with drug use and the loss surrounding it? What can we do better and what are we doing wrong? That's what I wanted to know next. The best use of our energy and time is not to tell that person, don't take the drug. I think at the moment a number of drugs are illegal, for example cocaine, MDMA, but we do know that adults and some young people, not in massive numbers among young people, it's actually lower as, as far as all the evidence that we have goes, it's actually lower than it has been for a long time. So as far as we know, the fact that drugs are illegal doesn't deter people from taking them. What it does deter people from doing is making an informed choice when they're buying drugs because drugs that are produced illegally have got absolutely no balances and checks on what potency they have, how well they're manufactured. I think one of the major issues that I've had is education, pretty much, you know. Because no one ever sat me down and said, you know, this can kill you. You're not going to stop people from doing it, but if you can educate them about the effects of what they're doing to their bodies. And I think we need to ask ourselves why are so many people, so many more people using more drugs than at any other time in history. Um, that suggests to me that there's more pain uh, than at any other time in history um, and the availability of those drugs and the and when I say drugs, I'm also including alcohol. Um, the availability of those drugs is, you know, responding to a need in the market, in very simple, simple terms. Um, and, you know, whether that market should be regulated or not is something we should be discussing, uh, and we're not. Drug legalisation seems like a radical step, but could it be the answer to the pleas of drug addiction? I think decriminalisation would have to be balanced with a really effective regulation of drugs in terms of quality control if we know that people really do want to use these drugs. I think we can see what's happened with alcohol and drugs which are controlled but not criminalised. We can see that there's still damage from them. So 
If we were to just legalise all drugs, I think we would have a really difficult situation on our hands. I think we would have a situation similar to when new psychoactive substances were on the market, where we had this aggressive developing dynamic market where substances were completely unregulated, people didn't know what they were buying. If we had a more cautious decriminalising approach like they have in Portugal, for example, with controlled production, I would suggest, of the more popular drugs, that we know that we're not going to be able to stop taking people, people taking drugs through legislation alone. Personally, criminalisation, I don't think, helps. I, mean, I am being diplomatic, I have to be diplomatic, but I think it doesn't help anybody. Um, if we're looking at countries, Portugal is a classic one, Switzerland also, there are other places that have seen fantastic results, the number of deaths has gone down. I don't think, you know, that people should be criminalised for using drugs, absolutely not. Um, I think we should be aware of why, more aware of why people use drugs. All these people are dying needlessly. And you know, obviously Portugal was recorded a massive reduction, so for me it's just a massive one of people's lives here. You know, and as I say, you know, we're all humans, we're all people, you know, just because someone looks a little bit you know, frail and all that, you know, they're still human, you know, we should be caring about these people, right? we should be trying to help them. You know, instead of just be gone, you know, there's your, you know, see you later, away, away. <laughs> no, it's like, it mind, no, no, it's not working. <laughs> it's now clear to me that our current drug policies aren't helping people enough. They're hindering some of the most vulnerable people in our society. So isn't it time we progress forward and at least discuss this issue so we can eventually consider drug use a public health issue and not a criminal one? So I want to quickly touch on how the media report on drugs and drug users. Just while I researched for this show, I came across three articles which refer to safe drug consumption rooms as either shooting galleries or fix rooms, which definitely has connotations of some underground, illegitimate rundown house, whereas as we've seen, these would be medical facilities run by professionals. Also, the use of images like these contribute to the idea of unsafe and illegitimate practices and also conjure up some sort of visceral reaction. I mentioned that the Scottish Affairs Committee recommended a decriminalising of possessions of small amounts of drugs for personal use. So I want to explore the arguments for and against decriminalising drug use. Arguments for decriminalisation include that fewer people would be in prison for possession of drugs, which would ease overcrowding, and possibly save money by not housing so many non-violent offenders. The inherent danger of various drugs is also a significant argument for decriminalisation, or at least the questioning of the legality of other drugs like alcohol or tobacco. In 2009, David Nutt, a neuropsychopharmacologist, was sacked as the government's drug czar for releasing research showing that LSD and ecstasy were less harmful than alcohol. If you trust this scientific research, then it's a considerable point to be made for decriminalising drug use. And another argument for decriminalising is the lives saved. In 2001, Portugal became the first country to decriminalise the possession and consumption of all illicit substances. Since then, it's seen dramatic drops in overdose and HIV deaths, as well as drug-related crime. As for the against arguments, a lot of arguments suppose that drug use is wrong and by decriminalising it, we're sending a message that it is right. This argument can be quickly rebutted by the many other things that the majority of us agree are wrong, but we're not advocating for criminalising, like breaking a promise or lying. Another argument would be that since heroin produces such a pleasurable experience, more so than anything else, that the use of heroin would increase if decriminalised. 
However, again, this can be potentially squashed by Portugal's dramatic drop in overdose deaths. So if more people are using heroin, a very small number are dying from it there. You only have to look at the drug use trends of Portugal's population to see that less people are using cocaine, amphetamines and MDMA. So decriminalizing these drugs has not led to an increase in use. And lastly, another argument concerns children and young people, with the idea that if cocaine and heroin, for example, are decriminalized or sold over the counter, it would be easier for them to obtain it. However, in some areas, it has already been seen that it's easier to order cocaine than pizza. So surely if these drugs are in the hands of professionals or medical bodies, it would actually be harder for children to obtain them. Now let's move on to COVID-19 again. How has COVID-19 affected those addicted? Well, firstly, opioids negatively impact lung and heart health, so people who use opioids at high doses may be more susceptible to COVID-19 and the illnesses may be more severe. We also should remember that those currently in treatment may be challenged by physical distancing measures. Self-quarantine and other public health measures may disrupt access to medications and other support services, which means a relapse is much more likely. Not just relapse, but if social distancing measures are in place, if someone who lives alone were to overdose, the likelihood of someone being present to administer naloxone, which prevents overdose deaths and saves lives, is small, meaning we could be facing more overdose deaths as a result. If you are struggling with addiction at this time, there's a wide range of resources which can help, like the NHS, Crew 2000 and Edinburgh still providing help via phone, and specifically if you are using drugs during this time, there's a wide array of advice on how to do so in a more hygienic way to reduce your risk of catching COVID-19 at the Crew 2000 website. After talking about all that, drug policy, safe consumption rooms, the media's portrayal, decriminalisation and how drug users cope with these policies, maybe we should ask why drugs were made illegal in Britain and Scotland in the first place, as well as how to treat those who are addicted now. And that's a cue for my first guest, who's a senior research fellow and facilitator of the Scottish Addiction Studies Group in the Department of Applied Social Science at the University of Stirling. He's worked in the field of drugs for more than 45 years and was a director and co-founder of the Lifeline Project, one of the longest established drug specialist services in the UK. He's also the current executive director of the European Working Group on Drugs-Orientated Research, vice president of the European Federation of Therapeutic Communities, and in 1994 was awarded an MBE for services to the prevention of drug misuse. So here's my conversation with Rowdy Yates. So first, um, how are you coping with uh, COVID-19 lockdown and stuff like that? Uh, okay, okay. I live on a farm in Perthshire, so we're pretty isolated anyway. <laughs> so, yeah. Good. Um, and how, how do you think um, the government's handling it? Have you got any opinions on that? <laughs> um, which government are we talking about? Uh, we'll go. We'll go with Scottish government first, and then if, okay. you've got, if you've got, if you maybe think there's a difference between Scotch and the UK. Uh, yeah, um, I mean, I, I think uh, in terms of the Scottish government, I think we've made mistakes. Um, probably following too much the UK government line. Um, I think it's fairly clear that we weren't prepared to track and trace um, whose fault that is. It's not entirely clear to me. What I think is very different is the sense of leadership that although Nicola Sturgeon has clearly made some mistakes and our figures, our data doesn't look much better than the rest of the UK uh, and in some respects slightly worse, her approval ratings are astonishingly high. Um, 
you know, if you compare that to Johnson, who's, you know, that's going through the floor. So it's interesting. Um, uh, it's, you know, it, it's, it's a lesson in leadership, I think. Uh, how so? How so? You mentioned that um, Scotland might be doing worse in some aspects. What, what aspects do you mean? Um, our our rating is slightly higher than the rest of the UK. Um, that would be the only thing I'd put my finger on. But it's. It, I just think it's interesting that um, Nicholas Sturgeon has clearly blossomed in this period as a leader. Um, and and has you know a begrudging respect even from those few last remaining Tories north of the border. <laughs> well, that's the thing. That's the thing I mentioned in the the first episode I did, which was on um, COVID nineteen, and I've oh. done, done a little um, piece where I wanted to provide some context about the leaders at the moment, so we don't do that. We don't look at the leaders for getting us through COVID nineteen without looking at their past, like how they handled oh. the NHS and. And drug users was another one I mentioned. There's a lot of, um, I was I was speaking about like the last 10, 10 plus years with the SNP being in power. That uh-huh. the, the drug deaths in Scotland have just have went right up and it doesn't seem to be a priority. So I, I think it's important to look at um, leaders at the moment with context about what, sure. what other decisions they've made. Sure. Um, so I wanted to talk about your experience. So what... Um, what led you to starting the Lifeline project, co-creating it? Okay, okay. Well, um, my uh, involvement with drugs and addiction began in the early 1960s when I was playing in various bands um, right. and, and had a, a pretty serious addiction to heroin and methadrine. Methadrine you, you never hear of anymore. I don't know whether it's even still made. It was a kind of injectable amphetamine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, I suppose that the place, that place has been taken by cocaine, probably. Anyway, but, mm-hmm. so I, I had a fairly serious uh, addiction for five or six years um, and then basically um, stopped cold turkey, um, was basically made a prisoner by some friends of mine for a couple of weeks and then sent back to Scotland the time I was in London. Um, <clears throat> and uh, by various roundabout routes, I found myself in Manchester um, and began going to AA meetings, Alcoholics Anonymous, um, because really that was the only game in town. Um, Norman Imlach had... Um, uh, had a treatment unit at All Saints in Birmingham. Max Glatt had a treatment unit at St. Bernard's in London. Outside that, there was almost nothing. Um, so I started going to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. I was taken to one side um, by... I think you have to remember that in the 1960s, AA was very white very middle class, very male, uh, and very conservative with a small C. Um, mm-hmm. And I was taken to one side and told that this drug that I was involved with was not something they understood. And maybe this wasn't a meeting for me. Um, so 
I then ended up uh, meeting up with a couple of people who'd gone pretty much the same route as I had. And we decided with that arrogance that comes of youth that we would just start our own meeting. <laughs> so we did. Um, and we used to meet. Um, I mean, initially we were meeting every day. Um, and uh, there was a guy there called Jimmy Strachan, sadly passed away now. And Jimmy was a ferocious reader. And he'd gone into the library and found a book by a guy called Lou Yablonsky. Now, Leblonsky was a famous sociologist in New York. He'd done um, a huge amount of work on gang violence uh, in New York and gang culture. Um, and at one point, you have to remember, this, this would have been the late 1950s, um, and the established view was this is an incurable disease nobody gets better we can just control it um, but nobody gets better and then word begins to seep back to the east coast that out on the west coast in santa monica uh, there was um, a group calling themselves synanon uh, the first therapeutic community and there were no doctors involved there were no prison guards. There were no social workers. It was just a group of addicts staying in the same house with each other and getting better. And nobody believed that this could possibly be true. So the New York Probation Service sent out a small team um, to look at Synanon. Um, and part of that team was Lou Yablonsky. Yablonsky was so impressed but he stayed there for a year and wrote this book called Tunnel Back. So we read this book and thought, hey, we, we could do this. We can do this. So we started this little, um, this little community, really just using um, the, what we had from the book. Um, and that, that was really the start of it. Um, later it merged with... Um, um, with a, another group um, run by a, a South African psychiatrist called Eugenie Cheeseman. Uh, and um, I ended up volunteering for that organization. That was the start of Lifeline. So that was my history. Um, so then I, I stayed with Lifeline in various capacities for just over 20 years. Uh, and then I came back to Scotland again uh, to work at the University of Stirling as a researcher on addictions. Um, I did that for, again, just over 20 years. Shortly before he died, my father said, that's two jobs you've had in the last 40 years. Can you not stick at anything? <laughs> so so that's, that's basically my potted history. Yeah. And why, 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 is it a, why do you think it's a worthy cause um, to look at um, people who use drugs? Sorry, say that again. Why, why do you think it's a worthy cause to, well, to support oh. those who use drugs or to study those to um, contribute to that cause? That's a big question. I, well, <laughs> I suppose my answer would be that 
addiction is really, I, you know, unlike AA and NA, I do not believe that this is an illness. I think it's a disorder, but I don't think it's an illness. I do think that it's a symptom of an underlying disorder. Um, and I think that it's the same underlying disorder uh, that causes unemployment, poor educational attainment, poverty, teenage pregnancy, so on. These are all actually big, big money numbers. Um, and how do, how do we stop that? Well, we, we stop it by trying to build a firewall between this generation and the next. And we can't do that with current policy. Current policy is overwhelmingly about management. It's overwhelmingly about you have an incurable disease, we will manage it for the rest of your life with this medication, methadone. Now, we know that that does work because we're already seeing addicts coming into treatment, into mainstream treatment, whose grandparents were on methadone. So we know that it doesn't stop that generational transmission. Um, what we do know is that recovery, real recovery from addiction, does stop that. Uh, and, you know, there are various studies. There's a famous study by Cook and Lewis in New, New Zealand um, where they looked at children from families where one or both parents were addicted to drugs or, or alcohol, uh, children from families where there was no evidence of either parent having any addiction to drugs or alcohol, and children from families where one or both parents were in long-term recovery. And what's interesting is that the children who did best was from that third group. They were doing better than the general population and the control group. Right. And the reason for that is that the strengths and internal, well, the internal strength that people need to sustain their recovery are the same as the internal strengths you need to be a good parent. Right. So, so that would be my position. I think it's important because it's, it's, a, it's a red flag for something that is even more important to society. And so you've done a, you've done a lot of work on um, therapeutic communities. Could you maybe just uh -huh. um, explain what they are and maybe how effective they are or how you see them? Okay. Um, well, I'm going to say... I'm going to say they're really effective because I spent 50 years of my life working with them. Um, right. What is a therapeutic community? Uh, a therapeutic community is a community of addicts um, who are working together to uh, achieve a change in their behavior and a change in their outlook. Um, so it differs from other treatment in that you don't have a therapist doing therapy to you. 
you are the therapist yourself the community is the therapist um so you're purposefully using the community to create community and individual strength within that community um and you know there are some very you know some very obvious distinctions between um therapeutic communities and other types of treatment um the the most obvious obvious is is the hierarchy that there will be a hierarchy of um positions there's a structure to a therapeutic community so when you join a therapeutic community as a new member you'll probably be somewhere at the bottom of that um that structure you maybe be helping out with the kitchen and there'll be a chain of command there'll be an assistant head of kitchens there'll be a head of kitchen uh head of kitchen will report to maybe the assistant housemaster you know housemaster uh, or house director then there'll, there'll be a director of house and only then do you reach the staff um and your promotion through that structure is a measure of your engagement with the structure um so maybe the clearest way of defining it is if i was a a five star chef and i went into a therapeutic community because i had a heroin addiction the last place i would work would be the kitchens because that's not the point the point about putting people in the structure is to put people under a certain amount of pressure uh within a safe environment um so you have two things you have the structure which is very rigid um you know a little bit like the army i suppose uh and then you have what i call the circle which is the encounter group where you resolve issues so that if you know somebody tells you i i i'm working in the kitchens um and i'm keeping getting bowled out by head of department oh i don't know what that was that's so good i keep getting bowled out by head of department because i'm not cleaning the dishes properly mm-hmm. so i do what's called dropping a slip i say that i want to encounter jim who's head of kitchen department because he's unfairly treating me about washing the dishes that will be sorted out by staff and residents before the encounter group to make sure that we're both in the same group um and make sure that that's on the agenda for that group now at that point one of two things can happen one might be that jim gets bowled out because everybody in the group says yeah he's always criticizing me as well and it's all really unfair or it might blow back on me and everybody said i had a fucking dirty dish for my breakfast this morning you bastard <laughs> <laughs> and the whole point of that is to one is to for people to begin to learn and internalize the notion that you can't just fire off when when you know it's impulse control if you like so that's one thing you have to wait until the appropriate moment to deal with something that's one of the lessons you're learning and the other lesson is 
that you can resolve these things without violence, without using drugs. Um, so that's, I mean, that's effectively how they work. I mean, it's obviously much more complex than that. But yeah, um, the results look really good. Um, Dekeem in Belgium, a uh, very long established uh, therapeutic community, have recently reported um, graduations at 62%. Now that's one year in a therapeutic community and one year outside, generally in supportive housing, uh, maintaining contact with the community, but using neither drugs or alcohol. So that's a two year program in total. That 62% is frankly amazing. Um, and, you know, we're seeing similar results from other agencies around, uh, around Europe. Uh, I'm, I'm now, I was president of the European Federation of Therapeutic Communities. I'm now honorary vice president, whatever that means. So I, I, <laughs> I do keep, you know, um, I, I get the data from various European, we have, member agencies in every European country um, and we have associate members from the United States, uh, Japan, the Lebanon, Israel, so on. Right. Um, so yeah, um, I, I think we're doing a fairly good job. Unfortunately, we're fairly peripheral. Sorry? We're fairly peripheral. Um, right. We're, we're not part of the mainstream. I mean, I think the, the thing you... Sorry, am I going on too much? No, 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 please go on. I, the, one of the crucial things that I think you need to know is mm. that mainstream treatment, and by that we generally mean psychiatric treatment. This is... Addiction is, for, for the last hundred years, has been located within psychiatry, effectively. Um, and... Mainstream treatment is generally very, very skeptical about recovery. Um, so it tends to go in cycles. You will get a cycle of mainstream treatment managing and controlling uh, addiction, but not seeking recovery. And you reach a point where people get so irritated by that and that would be people in treatment or or their relatives that they say you know we need something else when when's our treatment going to start um and that's what happened in the 1930s with alcoholics anonymous it happened again in the late 1960s and early 1970s with therapeutic communities because at that time the government's only response in the uk was to prescribe Biceptone, which was the injectable form of methadone. Um, and people started to say, well, when do I get better? Yeah. We've, I suppose we're now into another period like that, where, you know, from about the middle 1980s with the, uh, with the AIDS epidemic to about 10 years ago, we had a, a period when methadone maintenance was really the only kid on the block. 
and everybody got methadone. You know, about 98% of people going into treatment were getting methadone. Um, and eventually people started to say, yeah, but when do I get better? Um, and, and often struggled to, to get rehabilitation. And we're often told, you know, well, don't rock the boat. You're doing okay on your methadone. You're not ready for, you know, you're not motivated. You're not ready. You're not, you know. And I meet people all the time who are really angry with mainstream treatment. I met a guy a few weeks ago uh, who is currently in Phoenix House in Glasgow, which is the only therapeutic community in Scotland. Uh, and he's, he was really, really angry. At the age of 19, he went to his doctor because he'd been smoking heroin for a year. And his doctor put him on methadone. And he stayed on methadone for the next 15 years, continually asking his doctor, can I, you know, can I taper this off? Can I, you know, can, can I go to a, a rehab house? I'm continually getting told, no, you're doing fine. Don't rock the boat. You, you know, you're not ready. And he says, and for my money, I think he's right. He says the medical profession added 15 years to my addiction career. And I will never forgive them. So, so that's therapeutic communities. One, just one other thing to say about therapeutic communities, which, you know, admitted, therapeutic communities really grew out of um, Deirdrich's, uh, Chuck Deirdrich was the founder of Synanon. He'd been a member of AA for many years, and he grew out of that. So in some ways, it's like AA. The fundamental difference is that unlike AA, in therapeutic communities, we believe that people get better. We don't believe that this is an incurable disease. We believe that eventually people reach a point where they are no longer addicted. So unlike AA, I mean, if I was in AA, I'd be telling you now that I was in recovery, which for me, seems utterly stupid, you know, <laughs> that, that I'm in recovery for 50 years. Well, when's that stop? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so, so the, that's a pretty fundamental difference. Right. And so based on, like, a, a lot of the research I've done, so I've done, I, and for my first um, degree, my dissertation was on how the media and portrayed oh. drug users. And I'd, I'd done a section just about a brief, a brief kind of history about oh. drug policy. And I've also, I also filmed a short documentary on drug policy. And based on all this, this research, it just seems that the war on drugs, it doesn't seem to be effective. But since it, it looks so ineffective, why, why were these drugs made illegal in the first place? That's what, that's what I'm curious about. That's <laughs> <laughs> another big question. Right, well, um, really the start of all that goes back to the 1850s. Up until, and up until then, there'd been no real legislation in the UK on drugs. 
um, from the 1850s onwards, you start to see legislation that is aimed at quality standards, if you like, of supply. So it's aimed at suppliers. So, you know, everybody had their own recipe for laudanum. Um, the, that would began to be standardized. Um, but at that point, there was no laws against drug users themselves. Um, then in the early part of the 20th century, just before the First World War, there were a series of meetings in The Hague. Um, they were mainly inspired by President Taft. Taft was in particular interested in extending the U.S.'s influence over the Pacific Basin. Um, and one of the big influences in the Pacific Basin was the Brits, um, and we controlled the opium trade. Um, and we just fought two wars, one in conjunction with the French, uh, to force China to take our opium, which we were growing under license in India. Um, the Brits, uh, because of their interest in opium and subsequently heroin uh, and the, sorry, morphine, and the Germans who controlled most of the cocaine trade were pretty resistant in those, um, in those meetings. Uh, there were three just before, the, the last one being 1914, right before the First World War. Um, it probably wouldn't have come to anything except the war broke out. Um, and it's the first example I think I know of the media really controlling the message. So the media began a, a whole series of very lurid um, coverage of um, people using drugs. Um, and and the, the underlying message, um, and it wasn't terribly subtle, was, you know, this will damage the war effort. You know, people are selling drugs to our soldiers. Um, and, and generally it was prostitutes. Um, so, so, you know, it ticked all the boxes, really. Um, and at that point, the government brought in um, Regulation 40B into the Defence of the Realm Act. And the Defence of the Realm Act was a huge piece of wartime legislation um, meant to be temporary. Um, interestingly, that's where your income tax comes from. So it wasn't terribly temporary. Um, but there was, um, they wrote in um, Regulation 40B, and that was aimed at the drug trade. And it was the first piece of legislation in the UK that was about drug users rather than drug suppliers. Um, up until that point, um, it had been relatively free. Um, Fortnum and Masons, I think it was Fortnum and Masons, or it might have been Harrods. One of the big London stores was done for selling cocaine. Um, and actually you could sell cocaine, but you had to sell it to the end user. And their mistake was to sell it 
sell cocaine in a small snuff box, silver snuff box. Uh, and it was sold as an ideal gift for friends at the front. Um, and the trial uh, judged that that message meant that the person buying the cocaine wasn't the person who was going to be using it. And that was why it was. So that was one of those stories. Uh, and there were lots of others. Um, and from that point on, most of our legislation in the UK has been aimed at drug users uh, as well as drug suppliers. It's probably our biggest mistake. And so if we fast forward to now, what, well, if anything, do you, what do you think needs to change with drug policy? Or do you think it needs to be a more lenient approach, maybe leading towards decriminalization? Or maybe, or is it, are we not being harsh enough do you to think there maybe needs to be um, stronger punishments? Okay. Um, I, I suppose my view would be one of decriminalization. Um, I'm not terribly interested in campaigning for things that are never going to happen. So you won't find me beating the drum for legalizing heroin. Um, right. And actually, I think that legalizing some drugs would probably cause much greater damage. Um, taking heroin as an example, um, if we legalized heroin, there is no government in the world that's going to legalize heroin without certain restrictions. You know, even if it was only that you could only get it when you were 18 or over, um, there would be restrictions to it. And there would probably be a cost. Now, what that means is that probably the black market in heroin would not go away. So you would have two markets operating in parallel. And interestingly, we actually know what that would look like because it's happened before. So in 1965, when the Brain Committee reported on uh, heroin addiction in, in the UK, they recommended that doctors lose the right to prescribe for addiction um, and that that be vested in specialist drug addiction clinics. The government didn't act on that for three years. So, but doctors did because most GPs didn't want heroin addicts on their caseload anyway. So as soon as the brain committee made that recommendation, the doctors took it as a, the opportunity to dispense with these clients, these patients that they didn't want. That meant there was a bunch of people who had been getting prescriptions from their GP for heroin who were now rattling around looking for something else and found it in Gerrard Street in London where the Chinese community had for years been smoking um, Chinese number three. Um, and then two things happened. One was that a lot of people who... Um, who had been using British pharmaceutical heroin found that they quite liked the zing of dirty street heroin. And the other was that if you were like me, still getting a prescription, uh, if you were one of the lucky ones, you could sell your British pharmaceutical heroin 
and buy a wheelbarrow full of street heroin. And what that meant was recruitment into heroin accelerated dramatically because we would be selling British pharmaceutical heroin to people who wanted to use it at the weekend and try out and see what all the fuss was. So that recruitment accelerated and consumption also accelerated. I went from a gram a day to two grams a day just because I could. Yeah. So that's not going to work in my view. But we come to, I mean, there are things that we could do. Um, firstly, we, we ought to review the Misuse of Drugs Act. It's 1971 it went on the statute book. It's never been reviewed. I can't think of any single law in the UK that has been on the statute books for so long without a thorough review. Uh, in fact, it's just been added to. It still contains elements from... Like, uh, there are bits in the Misuse of Drugs Act about opium houses because that was taken from the 1926 Dangerous Drugs Act. This is a nonsense. This needs to be reviewed. Uh, and, you know, the whole point of any law is to protect the rest of us and support those of us who are breaking that law. Um, um, and you can't do that by just sticking something on the statute book and leaving it there. For my money, we should take away uh, imprisonment um, for possession. We should have clearer guidelines on what possession means. Uh, at the moment, very few people go to prison in the UK for possession. Some do. Um, it's a bit of a postcode lottery. Um, if you're in a remote rural area, you're probably more likely to get a prison sentence for possession than you would if you were in an urban situation, for instance. Um, it would be relatively easy to do. Um, we would need clear guidance on what possession meant. Um, at the moment, we have the Misuse of Drugs Act, which effectively and rather brutally splits people into suppliers or possessors. Um, and there's no clear guidelines. Um, and you can't be one, you have to be one or the other. Um, in practice, um, that's a very, very blurred boundary. And some people will occasionally, you know, you, you, you will get um, cooperative buying where someone will go out and buy enough for him and two or three of his mates um, and probably cover the cost of his own supply by bumping the price up slightly for his mates. Is that supplying? Probably not. Um, you know, the, the, it's a very, very blurred boundary. Um, and it does mean that many people who I think probably are possessors go to prison as suppliers. So. And so do you think um, your views may be closer to the Portugal model? Of decriminalisation, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, um, Portugal's Portugal's done a pretty good job. I mean, 
like so many governments, they've failed to resource it properly. Um, so, you know, the treatment services are struggling in Portugal. Um, but the, the central principle of, of, you know, not imprisoning people, not putting people through the criminal justice system, but rather moving them across into a treatment system, that's a good principle. And so, did um, I don't know if you ca if you caught the um, the inquiry the Scottish Affairs Committee launched. Well, they, they published a report. They published a report in November. Yeah, I submitted evidence to that. Oh, they, really? Yeah, they ignored it. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, what, what did you think about the report they published? Well, I th I, I think that uh, they spent far too much time talking about consumption rooms. I'm, 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 you know, I'm sorry, but, you know, if you've got a consumption room in the centre of Glasgow, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm out in Anna's land and I've just scored, am I seriously going to get on a bus and go all the way into the city centre in order to use? Come on. Well, you, what, about, what about the people that are maybe... Um at least central or at least close to where his consumption room would be. Maybe it's a good first step. One of the central arguments for the drug consumption room was we've got all these people who are not coming into services and this is a way of getting them to come into services. This is a foothold. Okay. If that's the argument, why has Glasgow got no outreach workers at all? Surely that would be the first thing you would do. You've got people who are not coming in services, you get the services to go out to them. You don't do it by hanging carrots outside the door. So, I mean, I'm, I'm not against drug consumption rooms. The evidence for them is pretty good, but it's evidence for a very, very small group. Um... I would rather see us increase our ability to um, to send our workforce out into the community, um, so that so that people have a you know a, an entry point. Um, and I would much much rather we spend more time uh, and more money on residential treatment. We absolutely know that residential treatment works, but we're not really funding it. Glasgow, Glasgow funds 14 beds, the whole of Greater Glasgow. That's a nonsense. One of the problems that, re well, residential rehabilitation has two problems. And I'm, I'm thinking of all residential rehabilitation, but obviously my interest is in therapeutic communities. We have two major problems. One is that it's regarded as very expensive. And that means it becomes the, it becomes the treatment of last resort. So you don't get to go to a residential rehab until you've proved that you can fuck up at least three community-based treatment interventions. You have to be the worst of the worst, which clearly means that therapeutic communities end up treating the most chaotic, the most damaged. Um, 
so that that's one of the problems. In fact, um, therapeutic communities and residential rehabilitation are not more expensive. In fact, they're probably cheaper in the long run than putting someone on methadone for 20 years. Well, I was going to say, would it not save um, the government yeah. or council's money and emergency costs, medical costs and stuff like yeah. that? So, so that's, that's the basic, basic problem. It just, I mean, I did, I did a piece of work with James Pitts, uh, the director of Odyssey House in Sydney, Australia. And he got a survey of 13 Australian and New Zealand therapeutic communities. And what they'd done was ask people about their use of state resources, if you like, in the month before they came into treatment. Um, so they looked at, you know, how many times did you go and see a doctor? How many times were you in A&E? How many times were you lifted by the police? How many times did you go to court? Da, 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 da. Um, you know, where, who was funding your housing and so on. And what we found was, if you took that cost, we, we costed all of that, for that month, and then looked at the cost of a month in treatment in, in a residential therapeutic community, it was a 60th of the cost. So the truth is, don't shorten programs, because we know the shorter you make the program, the less useful they are. Let's make them five years long, because we're saving money every day just by having someone in the treatment service because their, you know, their criminal justice costs disappear almost totally. Um, their health costs disappear or, or virtually disappear. It's, it's a win-win situation. So, um, so it's not expensive. But the fact that we think it's expensive and it's viewed as an expensive option by treatment providers and commissioners means that we don't have very many. And that means that they will, go, they will inevitably serve, serve a much bigger catchment area. And that means that since, because since community care in the 80s devolved that decision and that budget down to local authority areas, people in local authorities are not interested in buying a service outside their area. Mm -hmm. So the solution clearly would be to treat residential rehabilitation as a national resource. So it would be for, and this, is, this was the suggestion I made to Pete Wishart's commission um, inquiry, that we treat it as a national resource. The Scottish government decides, well, we'll need three um, therapeutic communities and two 12-step AA-style um, rehabs and three pastoral kind of farm-based, agricultural-based, you know, that, you know, that kind of, that's, how, that's what we need and who can deliver that for us? Let's commission that and pay for it with a top slice like we do with the police. No. So, so that's just paid for already. 
So that if I'm in Kirkwall in Orkney and I decide I want to go to a therapeutic community and it's, it's considered to be an appropriate treatment for me, then we just send me. There's, you know, we don't have to go through a whole process of me proving that I'm motivated and, you know, jumping through various hoops and messing up in various community programs. And then, you know, you have to go to various high agents and, and social work who approve or do not approve. Uh, and there's no budget for it. Blah, 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 blah. I just go. So that kind of covers the next question I was going to ask is for, um, what treatment do you think is most effective? So would you say that is how you, your view? <clears throat> and different people need different treatments. That's, uh, that's clear. Um, it's really about dosage. Um, for some people, going to an NA meeting once a week and maybe doing some, you know, going to a recovery cafe once a week, that's enough. That's a big enough dose. Other people will need a much bigger dose, a more immersive treatment. And that's where residential rehabilitation comes in. Um, the good news is that you can't overdose on a therapeutic community. So even if you would have got better with a smaller dose, you still get better with a bigger dose. <laughs> so... Um, so, as I say, different people will need a different sort of dose. What is clear, in my view, is that whilst there is a central truth that the longer you are in treatment, the more likely you are to recover. The better engaged you are with treatment, the more likely you are to recover. That is true in almost every circumstance except long-term prescribing of methadone, where it's absolutely clear that the longer you are receiving a, uh, a methadone prescription, the less likely you are to recover from addiction. And so you've also done work on drug courts. I just wonder if you could maybe explain what they are and how effective they are maybe. Hmm. Drug courts were interesting. We, um, I was part of a team uh, led by uh, Professor Gil McIver, um, looking at. We looked at, interestingly. We looked at the drug treatment and testing orders um, when they were piloted in Glasgow and Fife, and then subsequently the government decided to establish um, drug courts. I'm trying to remember, I think we had finished our review and evaluation of drug treatment and testing orders when they made that decision. But that decision then went to the drug treatment and testing order staff, basically. Um, so drug courts became an extension of drug treatment and testing orders. Um, and we were commissioned to go back and, again into Glasgow and Fife and look at those drug courts. What was interesting was the organizational change during that period, because that period covered about five or six years in total. And what you started with was very much a, a Portuguese style idea of let's have an honest broker 
who liaises between the bench on the one hand, courts, and treatment services on the other. And the broker's job will be to interview and assess the client, the offender, and make recommendations to the court that this guy needs treatment A, or this guy needs treatment B, or this guy needs A plus C. Um, so the broker's job was to direct people to the appropriate treatment service, uh, which is effectively what, what is supposed to be happening in Portugal. What happened over that six-year period is that I guess nobody wants to be a case manager. Everybody wants to have their hands on. So by the end of that treatment process, virtually everyone going through the drug courts were being treated by the drug court team. They weren't being referred out to different treatments. From the very start, residential rehabilitation was ruled out for reasons that I never understood even after six years of research in the projects. Um, that was ruled out. People weren't referred to it. Um, and the treatment offered by the drug court teams was methadone maintenance. Um, and those drug court teams expanded exponentially. I mean, they became huge. Um, but virtually no one was going to an outside treatment all the treatment was being provided in-house. Um, and I, you know, I, funnily enough, I, last week I was talking to Rui Martins, um, who runs Dianova Portugal, which is a, um, a, a chain of um, various types of uh, treatment provision, including therapeutic communities. And he was saying that the same thing is happening in Portugal. Um, the, the, I can't remember what they're called, they're called liaison managers or something. They're supposed to be effectively officers of the court who direct people to treatment, and they're becoming treatment providers. Um, and he says that's a major problem in Portugal now. So. And so I just, I've got, Three three questions left. Is that okay. is that okay? Are you okay for time there? That's fine. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I wanted to ask about the. It's a, a philosophic idea that I've been reading about that I, I think might be quite useful to if you apply it to people who use drugs. And the idea is that free will is an illusion, and okay. so everything everything we do is the combination of experience, of upbringing, societal factors, and external. Um, factors and so I, I found it useful if you apply if, well maybe you could um, tell me what your view on that would be based on your experience with using drugs do you think do you think it was more a combination of your experience if you've maybe had a different experience or a different or a different um, the people around you or grew up in a different country stuff like that do you think that would be more of a factor than your own free will Realize that's quite a deep question. <laughs> I'm not sure if this answers your question. Go on. I think that there's a saying in therapeutic communities, 
you you don't get to keep it unless you give it away. And what that means is everybody wants to be the hero that jumps in the river and saves the puppy, right? So if if you are actively working to help other people with their addiction, that makes you feel better about yourself. And that means that your recovery becomes more sustained. And I think that for many years, um, my recovery was probably sustained by my activities working in the recovery industry. Um, I think you know, it, it comes back to that point that I was making earlier about whether you believe that people become recovered or whether you believe that people are in recovery for the rest of their lives. Um, I do a talk for residents, um, which they, they always call it my three-jar talk in Phoenix House. And they keep three jars in the kitchen empty for me to do this for residents. And what I'm saying is, if, if you accept Zimberg's notion that addiction is a complex interaction of three factors. Firstly, there's the physical factor, you know, the, the, the biological, genetic predispositions. Secondly, there's the external factor, you know, what's your external landscape look like? It's no surprise that heroin really flourishes in areas of multiple deprivation. And thirdly, that's your external landscape. Thirdly, there's the internal landscape, how you feel about yourself, what you think you what you think people think about you, what you believe you could do with your life. Now, if that's the case, nobody comes with three empty jars into a therapeutic community. Our job in a therapeutic community is to increase people's capital in each of those three areas, to improve people's um, resilience in those three areas. Um, and if we can do that, then people will eventually reach a point where they don't need to help other people in order to fill those jars but they will probably continue to do that anyway. And that's a definition of being recovered, and it's also a definition of being a good citizen. Um, sorry, is that, is that a bit obscure, that? No, no, that's, that's a good answer. Um, so the last few questions I just wanted to ask, what, what advice would you give to someone who's maybe watching or listening to this who is struggling with addiction? My advice would be to try and get into a therapeutic community. <laughs> my, my advice, I guess, would be stop thinking about it as drugs. It's not about the drugs. It's about you. Um, I have my differences um, with AA, but one of the things that I really like is that AA saying, you only have to change one thing, and that's everything. Um, I, the, the whole point of this is 
people who feel comfortable with themselves, people who have good opportunities in life and an internal capacity to make, to use those opportunities or to make opportunities for themselves, don't get addicted. So it's not about the drugs. Drugs are simply a symptom. There's a classic um, quotation. It's my favorite quotation from Chuck Diedrich, the guy who started Synanon. And Abram Maslow. Maslow came, um, actually Carl Rogers came and visited Synanon and was so impressed with what they called the game, which uh, Carl Rogers renamed it and called it Encounter Groups and made a fortune by selling books about how to run Encounter Groups. Um, Abram Maslow came to Synanon. If you ever wondered where he got his hierarchy of need, it was from the hierarchy in Synanon. And in conversation with Deirdrich, Maslow said that he was really impressed that this was the best drug treatment service he'd ever visited. And Deirdrich bridled up and said, Synanon is not drug treatment. Synanon is a school where people learn to live right and stopping shooting dope is a side effect. And that for me says everything you need to know about your own personal addiction and about what drug treatment ought to be about. It's not about medicine, it's about learning. It's about learning how to behave yourself and be a positive citizen. And so what advice would you give someone who wants to help um, those addicted or support them? Ooh, that I don't think I can answer because it very much depends on their relationship with that person, where that person's at at that particular point in time. What I would say is if you have a relative or friend who, who's drug use is out of control or whose alcohol use is out of control, it's worth remembering that there is almost nobody who doesn't want to get back control. There's almost nobody who doesn't want to get better. Um, so that's your entry point because whoever it is, they will have woken up every now and again in the morning and thought, this, this is no good. They will probably have tried to gain control over it themselves long before they ever got in touch with treatment services. Because actually, nobody wakes up in the morning and thinks, this is a lovely sunny morning, I think I'll go to a drug treatment service and get some counselling. Nobody thinks that. Mm -hmm. So people will try and do it themselves when they feel it's out of control. Um, and those are the experiences that you can build on. If you can get people to talk about when, when did you try and stop and what happened? And how could we, if you tried to stop again, how could we make that better? I used to, years and years ago, I used to run groups in prisons and we used to do psychodrama, but we did it backwards. So we would get someone to relate. Think about a time when you started using, having stopped for however long. 
Now, let's walk back. What, what was happening five minutes before you stuck that needle in your arm? What was happening 10 minutes before? What was happening? Blah, blah. So we get it back. So we do that whole story backwards. And then we'd run the psychodrama. And we called it freeze frame. Because what all the other prisoners were able to shout freeze frame at various points in this psychodrama. And everybody had to stop you know, in mid-movement. And whoever had shouted freeze frame could say, at that point, you could have done this. Mm -hmm. This is something different you could have done. I, it was, that was never evaluated. Um, but I do think, I, I spoke to someone years later who said, I was in one of your freeze frame groups. That taught me so much. Um, so I, I, I just at the time I just knew people kind of enjoyed it it was funny um, I, but I do think you know if you have a relative or friend who is struggling with addiction they will have tried to stop themselves at some point and that's the basic building block that you can start to look at. And um, lastly, how, how do you view the future with regards to drug policy? Are you optimistic? Are you pessimistic? <sighs> At the moment, I am very pessimistic. Um, the pandemic has been a huge blow to therapeutic communities. Um, this <laughs> Therapeutic communities, you know, a therapeutic community is the first place ever in my life I saw two men hugging each other. <laughs> there's, uh, there's a lot of physical contact in the therapeutic community that has had to be withdrawn, and it's not clear yet how, what that means for the effectiveness of, of therapeutic communities at this point. I do think we'll probably have more pandemics in the coming years. So we'll probably need to alter our practice quite dramatically. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, I suspect that this government will use the expenditure on the pandemic to issue, to usher in another generation of austerity and we're always on the forefront of that um, you know you you have cuddly charities and scum charities um, we're, we're a scum charity you know you couldn't put uh, a little statuette of a, a junkie outside Sainsbury's with a slot on the top for, you know, people will not donate to that kind of charity. Um, so we're, we're, you know, we're low hanging fruit in terms of cutting resources. And in Scotland, we've already had dramatic cuts in services. Um, and the black report recently for the whole of the UK suggested that overall residential treatment had a 40% cut in the last 10 years. That's huge. 
And also, uh, so if for people who um, are interested in your work, where where's the best place to keep up to date with um, things you're up to, or just to read um, some mm. of your work? God, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, I found I found a lot of your work just googling your name, so that, maybe that would be enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what I would say is that I'm in the process now of. Um, writing to various editors. Over the, over the last 30 years, I've written quite a lot of articles in journals, most of them about drug policy and therapeutic communities. And I'm trying to pull those articles together into a book. Um, so I'm, I'm, at the moment, I'm at the stage of asking editors, can I reproduce my own work? Um, because the copyright obviously goes to the journal rather than to me. Um, so if I get that permission, there'll be a book out. <laughs> so there you go. Um, so, well, thank you very much for your time. That was a, that was a great conversation. Thanks, Gregor. That was good. My next guest is a recovering heroin addict who's been using methadone for the past 18 years. He has a master's degree from the London School of Economics and started a podcast about drug policy and users in which the correspondents are drug users. He's won multiple awards for journalism and broadcasting from such names as the Jack Webster Foundation, the Canadian Association of Journalists, and the New York International Radio Festival for material aired on CBC Radio. So here's my conversation with Garth Mullins. Can you hear me? Yes, I can now. Uh, nice. Hey, how's it going? Not bad. How's yourself? Not so bad. That's good. How, how's life at the moment there? Imagine it was, must be 12 o'clock there, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um... Well, I don't know. I've been inside the house for most of the last 70 days, so I have no fucking idea what the rest of the world is doing. <laughs> <laughs> so what's the, what's the rules like in Canada? What, what are the restrictions? Um, you know, it's social distancing and, and, and most of the shops and businesses and, and universities and governments and stuff are all closed. Um, but where I am in Canada on the West coast here, they're just starting to open. They're just starting to think about opening shops and restaurants and schools and stuff like this week. Okay. Um, How about you? It's pretty much the same. I mean, I think we've maybe got another week or so until the restrictions start to ease. I think they'll start off with kind of outdoor work and, um, you'll be allowed to meet one person from another household as long as you're still social distancing. So, it's pretty right. much the same. Um, how, where are you? Sorry? Where are you? I'm in Edinburgh. Right. In Scotland. Um, how are you how are you coping with it? Have you got any have you got any anything you're doing now to help you cope with it? Um I built a pedal board for my guitar, you know. Right. Like okay. you know, all the effects and shit. Like I've always thought about doing that and so I did that. Um we're just making the podcast and I'm, uh, you know, able to work from home. So that's all right. So are you, are you just making the podcast remotely? I'm guessing then. Yeah. Yeah. So that's weird. It means talking to people on the phone instead of, uh, going to where they are. So it makes for probably a more, um, sterile sounding podcast, but you know, uh, what can you do? Do, do, you, got, do, do you know how COVID is maybe affecting drug users there? Yeah, I mean, it's it's rough, right? Like, uh, there's certain drugs that are harder to get here now uh, because the borders are sealed. 
Um, the supply lines have changed, and so there's more contaminants creeping into the drug supply. I think in some parts of the market, the prices have gone up. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's changing how people are, are able to access drugs. Also, um, you know, just the shutdown of the whole national economy, I think, has changed how people are getting money for drugs. Like, um, there's less work, there's less informal work. Um, and, and so that has a, has a direct and a sort of a indirect effects on how people get money. So it's, I think it's really hard right now. I think a lot of people are dope sick. A lot of people are rattling right now, I think. Right. I also, I wanted to ask you, so you are a recover, would it be a recovering um, addict or would you say recovered? Um, addict? Oh, I mean, I am, I'm wired right now. Like if I didn't take methadone this morning, I would be throwing up this afternoon. <laughs> you know, right, so okay. I've taken opioids all of my adult life. Uh, you know, heroin and uh, Dilaudid and all of that, and and methadone. And so I don't know what you call that, but I'm I'm still like I'm still going to be dope sick if I don't take it. It's just what I take right now is is legal and not illegal. So. Um, yeah, it seems like it seems like if I said I was recovered, I'd be like bringing down the I am Sauron on me or jinxing myself. So I don't know really that. But uh, yeah, I mean things are things are not as shitty right now in my life as they have been at some times. So right. well, that's that's a silver linings we're putting it in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, what what do you, do you have any ideas of what led you to addiction? Uh. Yeah, I mean, there were some shitty things that happened to me when I was a kid. Uh, you know, I was around sort of uh, people, some some people who shouldn't be around kids were around me when I was really young, you know. Uh, but I don't know whether that's the cause. Uh, like, I just felt like alienated and an outsider for, for a, especially when I was young, just just hated myself, you know, and hated the world, hated my relationship to it. And the fact that the world had told me I was a, a, a loser, you know? Um, and then when I did uh, heroin for the first time, just switched all of that off, all of that howling alienation and, and the shit that I hated about myself, it just all stopped. Um, so some people do drugs to get really fucked up. Uh, I just did drugs to just feel like, ah, you know, th this is all right. I'm, this must, this must be what everybody else is feeling like. So, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know exactly why or, or what, and I don't have like a really good story or narrative, uh, set up for that. But, um, that was, you know, that was my experience of it. And once you find a way to turn off that howling alienation, once you find that switch, you're just going to reach for that, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and so now you're a writer, a broadcaster, podcaster, a singer. What, what would you say, what would you say, some, an activist as well, so what would you say is the most important of, of those, those things that you do? Now they all kind of blur into each other. Like I've played in like uh, crappy little punk bands for my whole life. And, uh, you know, I always kind of thought of that as an instrument of, of activism. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, you know, I always thought of the guitar as an instrument of propaganda. I'm more recently learning it's a musical instrument as well and trying to do better there in quarantine. Mm -hmm. I'm learning that 
pentatonic scales and all that. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, as an activist and a podcaster, those are a lot of the same job to me. Uh, you know, like everybody since, you know, as soon as you're, as soon as someone spots you as a, as a, as a dope fiend, you know, as, as a, like, as you're, you're uh, like wired to heroin or whatever they want, you know, people want to fix you or the idea is that there's something wrong with you that needs to be fixed. And that may be, but I know for sure there's things wrong with the world that need to be fixed. So I guess this is like flipping the serenity prayer. You know, there's just like, I reject the things, there's things I cannot accept that I got to change. And um, that's, that's the world and that's the job. And that's a lot of what I've done with my life, I guess. And, and you mentioned the podcaster. So crackdown, can you just say, maybe explain what, what crackdown is, what you cover? Yeah. Um, we are a group of drug users that make a podcast and uh, we make uh, audio documentaries every month about kind of chapters of the struggle and things that are happening. And uh, we've all been in the trenches for a long time as, uh, as drug users, but also as activists. And, uh, you know, we, we cover it like a drug war, like it is a war. We, we try to cover it like a war. You know, there's police acting as armies of occupation in our neighborhoods. There's casualties. There's political prisoners. There's all, all of the things or prisoners of war. You know, all of these things are happening. Uh, so we try to cover it like that. So it doesn't feel like a, a force of nature or something that just happens by accident or, or that's the individual's fault. This is a set of policies. This is an intentional thing like a war. And so we're the war correspondents. Um, that's how we cover it. And that's also what brought me to Glasgow uh, uh, late last year and why I started to um, be more interested in uh, the, what's happening in Scotland. I also used to live in the UK uh, you know, down in London back in the day, but, uh, uh, so I, I've, I've been there before, but, um, that's, that's what kind of brought me there. And with your, with your podcast, you said you use, so you're, you're a group of drug users as correspondents. Um, why, why use drug users? Is there an importance there? Sure. I mean, if you want to make something, uh, compelling and true about the overdose crisis, uh, it should be made by people who face the possibility every day of dying from overdose. You know, it should be made by people who know that world, who face those fears, who, who have lost people. You know, we, we started with an editorial board of nine and we're down to seven right now because of this. And in fact, um, you know, the last episode that I put out, would I put out two days ago, was in memoriam for uh, Dave Murray, who's a, who was on our editorial board and is a fantastic activist from around here for many years. That's why, because it makes it real. Um, because it's like, you don't, you don't tell it from an ivory tower. Uh, you don't tell it as if you're neutral, as if you uh, don't take a position. We absolutely take a position. And it's that we want, to, we want us and our community not to die. Uh, so in Canada, what are the, in your opinion, what are the current drug drug policies? Are they are they are they moving in a more positive direction now, or how how do you view that? Well, you know, it's like it's like any sort of set of laws and policies that uh, marginalize or oppress a group of people. Um, they sit on top of us like a leviathan. The fact that drugs are illegal, the fact that we get rounded up and put in jail. 
um, that our health gets impacted because drugs are illegal. Uh, that sits on top of us, but we push back, we push back against it. And occasionally we, we make a little bit of headway on that pushback, but still it's, it's still just, just like it is there. Um, people die from not really knowing the potency and the contaminants in what they take as drugs. We have, we have fentanyl here in a, in a huge way. Um, and the people don't know the potency and the contaminants in the drugs because they're illegal. It's like in North America, um, booze was illegal a hundred years ago, you know, classic alcohol prohibition, you know, where Al Capone and all that stuff came from. And the day before prohibition, everybody just, everybody drank beer, right? That was what people drank. It wasn't high alcohol percent. People didn't, people didn't, you know, have one drink and fall down dead because of uh, some contaminants in the beer. It was regulated. It was known. Then prohibition comes in. People start making moonshine because you've got to make something that's higher potency and smaller volume so you can smuggle it around and escape the cops that are trying to get you. Um, and, and then that was not regulated. And so it was contaminated and people went blind, got sick and died from it. And then when prohibition ended, that sort of thing ended. The, the fact of alcoholism was never interrupted by prohibition. All, all that happened was it made the consequences much, much deadlier. Um, during the time it was illegal. And so that's very true of drug prohibition as it was for alcohol prohibition. So that's the law here as it is there, prohibition. And so you, I'm, I'm assuming then, is are, are for drug decriminalization or legalization? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's the only way we can get out of the overdose crisis in North America here. You know, um, this is this is a incredible, incredibly difficult. Like I... I you know, a few years ago, I tried to count up the people I'd lost. I got to 50 people on my list and I had to stop because it was so, it was so upsetting to remember each of those names and to hold them in your heart for a moment. And then I have to let them go and find the next name. So I, I don't recommend ever doing that. Um, but this is actually my second overdose crisis. There was one I went, I, I used heroin all the way through in the 90s in Vancouver. And I don't want to be involved in the third and a fourth overdose fatality crisis because um, that's, that's what happens, you know, just as, just as, um, alcohol prohibition led us from beer to moonshine in North America, drug prohibition leads you from smoking opium to heroin, to injecting heroin, to what they call China white here, to fentanyl, to carfentanyl. So you can see over a century, it's just the, there's a, a product, the police chase it down. The dealers have to make us something smaller, more compact, stronger. The, the users want something stronger, more bang for the buck because it's harder to get. And you just have this, this race. And so that's where, that's just, that's the future if drug prohibition remains. It's just stronger and stronger and more and more corpses. So yeah, there's no question that it has to be ended. It has to be ended in Scotland too, unless you just want another, you know, 12, uh, 13, 1500 people dead every year in a country that's basically the size of the province of British Columbia, where I live, or the population of it, you know. And you mentioned fentanyl there, do you, and you mentioned you mentioned that at the, the conference last year as well. Do you think fentanyl poses a, a, a risk for Scotland as well as America? It's pretty bad in America and Canada there as well. Oh, yeah. It's coming for you. There's no question it's coming for you. Like, the, the just the laws of the market really dictate that – that when there's these opportunities for increased profitability or when there's vacuums and it's harder to get drugs or 
you know, when production from poppy fields gets interrupted by war or seizures of the borders, this stuff just is, is much easier to flow around the world or produce locally. It will get there. I don't know when, but I think that it will. And the question that the Scottish government and the government down in London got to ask themselves is, do we just want to wait for that to happen? I mean, or should we do things in advance to prevent that from happening? And you, you, so you, you said that you're using methadone. How, how important do you think that is for helping people like yourself? Do you think it would be better not to be using methadone or, or to get rid of methadone or... Is it an uh, integral part of um, recovery? Well, let me tell you, I, I wasted a lot of my life in 12-step programs that never worked for me. Abstinence didn't work for me. Um, you know, I really, really tried. And all I got was this, this uh, I think I may even have it here. Yeah, here's my, here's my NA workbook. And it's full of my, my uh, moral inventory. You know, so I have to, have to name out all my moral failings and um, you know try to delete them and and apologize to people for them and all that stuff and that was great and I I you know I tried and I felt very shitty about myself and and if it works for some people that's terrific for me it never worked uh, eventually methadone was the thing that hit but even methadone took a while to work for me if there was uh, prescription heroin I would have been able to save 15 years of my life and just get on with the things that I'm doing now as a middle-aged guy when I was younger, you know? Uh, so I think there's definitely a place for methadone. And I know when I was in Scotland, people told me, oh, it's terrible to be parked on methadone for, for uh, 25 years or whatever. Well, I've been on methadone for, um, I guess, 18 years. And, you know, I, I'm probably beyond it forever. That's okay with me. You know, like if I stopped taking it, I'd be throwing up immediately. Um, you know, I like, Maybe I get to some place somehow that I don't need anything, and that would be good too. But it's this this idea of getting away from methadone is not this animating force in my life. Um, whether people have a good life or a bad life on methadone, I don't think it's a function of whether you're on methadone. Is what are you doing with the rest of your life, right? And I know lots of people who are on methadone who have a don't have a job and don't have anything to do and have a fucking shitty time of it, right? And so that's that's a different set of problems we got to solve. Is is giving people opportunities and, and, and giving people actual jobs. But the, but it's not like if they got off the methadone, they would somehow all of a sudden be, Oh great. I can start being an accountant now or something. You know, it's, it, it's, it's not like that. Not here anyway. Um, and the other thing I learned when I was in Scotland is there's this big problem with underdosing there. And we have a little bit of that here, right? Like everybody knows exactly what, how many mils of methadone they're on. They always want to get it lower and lower. The doctors want to, mm-hmm. they want to, it's this race down. Right. But to me, it's like, do I feel well? Do I not feel well? That's, that's the measure of what's right. And so in, in Scotland, where it carries such a stigma as here, there's people who are not getting enough methadone. So you take your methadone in the morning, then you've got to go out and top up because you don't feel well. So you're getting underdosed so that the thing isn't even doing its job. You know, methadone has one job is so you don't feel dope sick. So you're not rattling all day. And so if you can't, if you can't get through, then that's no good. And methadone doesn't work for everybody, right? Like, um, a part of me feeling well was not just, um, not just the absence of rattling or the absence of dope sick, but it was that extra bump from, from heroin that, that made you feel like, oh, things are okay. You know, like things are all right. It's going to be okay. And that, 
that bump, you don't necessarily get that with methanol. That methanol just kind of gives you that flat line. You know, they bake it up that way. They mix it up that way. So you don't get that little, you know, some people would call it euphoria or, or feel a little high or feel something, but you're not supposed to feel much from it, you know? Sometimes, do you think, but <laughs> no, do you I, think, um, that's, that was important to me. Sorry? Do you think, uh, the, so underdosing for methadone, do you think that could lead to relapses on heroin if they're maybe not able to get um, the next top-up of methadone? Oh, it absolutely does. It, it does here. We know it does. I've seen it a million times. And I think it does in Scotland too. You know, I heard, I heard from uh, some people at the university there uh, had a, had some statistics that said that uh, that if if you just look at the if you just look at the um, the dosing the minimum dosing that people are supposed to get for methadone half of people in Scotland are not getting the minimum you know half of the methadone people in Scotland aren't getting the minimum so I just I just imagine there's you know there's uh, fifteen thousand or twelve thousand people are, uh, in in Scotland who are not getting the right methadone you know and and so it's like hard to measure whether a program is good or bad when they aren't even following the basic instructions, you know, the, the doctors, the, the people in charge of the program, you know. And so if we go back to, to drug policy, um, how, so there's, there's a, the Scottish government launched an inquiry last year into the drivers of um, drug use. And they recommended, it was very surprising to me, they recommended um, decriminalizing um, drug use and this this inquiry was led by um, MPs but they heard stories from recovering drug addicts and so I was I was just wondering how important do you think having drug users at the table for policy how important do you, do you think that is? Oh I, th I think it's super important because um, the the current policy in Scotland as it is in Canada is killing us so obviously we're not at the right tables yet you know I've been at tables that can make recommendations I've never been one of the people holding the pens on the policies, you know, uh, and I, I think, uh, or very, very rarely do you get that opportunity. And I, I think the fact that we still have, we still have criminalization, that we don't have decriminalization in Canada or in Scotland means that we're not at the right tables yet. You know, um, I, I think it's good that they had people at that um, conference last year and, and that they were able to make that recommendation uh, for decriminalization is, I mean, it's really important. I know it sounds counterintuitive, but the, all, all of the harms in my life didn't come from heroin. They came from the laws around heroin, the economics of heroin, the cultural perceptions of heroin, uh, you know, the health impacts of getting cut off heroin or having contaminated heroin, but the actual heroin molecule itself didn't cause all those harms. And it took me a long time to realize that because, of course, I went through the 12 step where you where you are told, oh, you're just rationalizing. That's what my sponsor would say if I thought about stuff like that. You're just rationalizing future drug use because you want to blame it on the law or something like that. And I said, well, you know, it could be both. Like, I, I definitely wanted to use more heroin, but it was also true that, you know, getting locked up in jail uh, or having to do your hit um, in a you know, in secret, in conditions that might not be sterile, you have to rush it and all that. That's all from criminalization and, and, and those things are bad for your health and bad for your life. Mm -hmm. And I also want to know, um, with, um, in Scotland, we've also been, there's been a lot of push for safe consumption rooms. And I know that you said, you told a story in the conference about the way that you um, 
introduced safe consumption rooms in was it Vancouver? Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, so I just wanted to ask how 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 did you how did how did that happen basically? Well, you know, nothing, no, no reform that benefits people ever really comes for free. Like the government isn't benevolently thinking of how to help us in handing that stuff out. We always got to arm twist the government to give it to us. And that's true for drug users, but it's true for, for workers, for, for, for everybody, every group of people who's not in power, they have to um, win that stuff. You know, it's why we have the eight hour workday instead of the 16 or 18 hour Dickensian workday because unions went on strike and won that stuff, you know? So it's like we, we, and that was breaking the law originally to, to demand that eight hour workday. So, and I know there were big battles in Glasgow about that a hundred years ago or 150 years ago, you know, running street battles for that. And so we, in Vancouver, we broke the law too. We set up our own supervised injection sites before it was legal. And um, we just ran them. We didn't wait for permission. And I think just about everywhere in the world that has safe injection sites now, that's what happened. And you got that guy, uh, Peter Crikant, right? He's suggested uh, that he's going to get a van and just start doing that. And I think he was, he was talking about that or raising money or getting the van or something right before you had COVID there. So you can even see people in, in Scotland reaching for the same tools, that same civil disobedience to try and um, break through to the, to the, uh, to the place you want to be. And, so do you, do you also think, do you th- so is it just a one issue, um, is it just a, one issue to focus on or do you think there's other issues surrounding problem drug use like so housing, homelessness or you know, stuff like that? Do you think it, do you think it needs, more, it needs to be a broad approach? Yeah, definitely. No, I, I think that housing is a big part of it. You know, I think that, um, I think that, when you're a drug user, you've often led a life where you've had so little agency and so little self-determination. And then the structures around you, when you're, when you're a drug user, they really t- take away that kind of self-determination. They, they don't give you any, you know, being in jail is the ultimate of having no agency and self-determination and, and not having housing is like that. And so to have housing and start to address those things so that you get a little bit more control back in your life that's been, taken by these structures is really important because I think that's part of, I mean, that's, that's probably a fundamental path to treatment or to something better is that, is that you have a, you have that control back in your life that has been um, absorbed by these, these other things. So, yeah, I, I definitely think that, you know, being able to have housing and um, like not be poor, you know, like have a decent kind of opportunity for work, uh, and work in something that you you care about, that you feel good about. I mean, everybody needs that. So, I, what would what would you so what would you say to someone who is, is opposed to, to decriminalization or legalization? Maybe says, if you decriminalize the use of heroin, the uh, the use of heroin will increase. Uh, well, I, like right now. Um, I don't know how many, how many people you have that are, are, are like counted statistically as drug users in Scotland, 50,000 or something like that. Mm-hmm. That number has been growing um, probably over the last 50 years. So criminalizing um, heroin has not been an effective way to stop people from being interested in it. Mm-hmm. So 
the the person who's suggesting this has got to look look at some other cause. You know, they're they they're saying, oh, if you if you stop criminalizing, more people will use. Well, the onus is on them to show that criminalization is preventing people from using. It's mm -hmm. it's not. You know, so it's just it's filling the jails up with drug users. Mm -hmm. And what about the what about the, this other ideas? Um, this is this is from me kind of researching um, arguments against um, decriminalization. Mm -hmm. So there's there's ideas that um, decriminalizing or legalizing drugs, making drugs um, you're able to buy them over the counter, will increase drug use amongst children, young people, stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, um, well, I guess you, you think about how alcohol is um, sold and consumed in Scotland, right? Or Canada. Um, and people do try to control, at least here, whether young people have access to alcohol. So you're not able to go and buy booze until you're 19 here. Mm -hmm. At least you're not supposed to be able to. So society can decide, you know, you you can decide how you want to legalize something. You don't just have to hand out um, heroin at the schoolyard. You can decide, you know, kids can't have it. Um, or you could decide it's by prescription, or you could decide that <clears throat> people have to build a little, <clears throat> excuse me, a little like co-op uh, to get it and they already have to be wired to it. So it's like, um, you don't just need to have the door open or shut <clears throat> any, any, city or, or country can decide the way in which they want to legalize or decriminalize, you know, like even, even alcohol um, in Canada has rules around how you sell it. Right. So they, alcohol is not criminalized. Alcohol is legal and it's regulated, but you can't just get it anywhere and you can't just get it anytime and anyone can't just get it. So there's, mm -hmm. there's, um, there's rules and people are constantly debating on whether alcohol should be easier to get or harder to get. You know, or occasionally people have these kind of debates in in um, in legislatures and parliaments and stuff. So, I mean, they could they could take the same thing to heroin. You know, they could decide the harms from using heroin are less than alcohol or more than alcohol. I I actually believe they're less. Like, um, you know, when if like I just when when people are um, when people are 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 nodding out they're not getting in as many fights as when they're drunk. You know, like I just haven't, I haven't myself been nodding out and then jumped up and started beating on some fucker because that's, <laughs> it's not how you do, you know, but, um, uh, you know, there's, and there's probably lots of research to back that up. So you could make the regulation fit with the potential harms and, and sort of, and sort of try to mitigate what the, what the society is thinking is, is going to happen. And, and then you could tune those regulations as you, as you proceed into decriminalization, you know? I mean, here in Canada, pot's legal. It's now legal in some states in the U.S. too. And they, everyone said the same thing. Oh, my God, think of the children, think of the children. And um, they're just regulating how children can access it. The, the problem is, though, in the illegal market right now, children are accessing heroin and children were accessing pot. So it's not also that, that when it's illegal that it stops children from getting it. You know, I started, I started using heroin before I could legally drink. And there have been times in my life where heroin was more affordable and accessible to me than alcohol. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, 
It's like you, you, you don't have this world in which the criminalization is keeping heroin in the safe, small place. It's heroin's everywhere. And I think there's way more people who are using uh, hard drugs than maybe, than maybe you might think. Like you've got everybody watching this has got some uncle or some grandmother or I don't know, some brother, sister, whatever, maybe they are, but it's like, it's out there, you know? Well, sorry, you were just saying about it's easy, it was easier to get um, heroin and alcohol. I was watching, it was a documentary in the, it was about a six-year-old kid or something like that was saying it was easier for him to order a gram of Coke than it was to order a pizza. <laughs> and uh, all, these, all these people who are saying, um, what, how, how are we going to stop kids from getting FSD criminalized? Well, you need to figure out how you're going to stop them now when it's illegal. Yeah. So, I mean, I also you, want, you could, if, they, if they want this criminalization to stop it, then you really have to build a police state. You have to seal the borders. You have to surveil everybody. You have to piss test everybody. And maybe you have to lock them up for, you know, 50 years or something. And I just don't think that people in Scotland are going to tolerate a police state, just as people here don't want that either, you know? Yeah. I also, I, I wanted to run, run something back. I don't mean for this to be um, too deep or philosophical, but... It was, it was something I was, I've been thinking about for the last couple of weeks. It's the, the idea of free will and how free will is perhaps an illusion where the thoughts we have and the actions we take, we don't actually have any control over them. It's all kind of societal factors or who we meet or our parents or upbringing. And I was just wondering, if that was the case, do you think that's, that's um, evidence that, that drug addiction can happen to anyone? So if, if, if I had had the exact same experience as you growing up and I had the exact same people around me, I would still end up that way. And if you had had the experience I had, it would be vice versa. Yeah, I don't know. Um, so I, I don't like for, for, for one thing, I'm not, I'm not totally sure why some people get wired and some people don't. Um, like I, I went out with this girl uh, when I lived in the UK and she still lives there and she could just do heroin and then not do it. And she never through her whole life, never got a habit, but I could not do that, you know? Mm. Uh, and so I like, maybe there's something about how we were brought up or things happened different to her. I, you know, I don't, I don't know for sure, but I, I think that, I think that maybe we have free will, but it's constrained. So I was talking about all these structures that, that um, constrain us from um, having some self-determination and so I think there's this constant sort of war between those structures and the personal agency that we have. You know, it's a tug of war, it's push pull, it's structure and agency. And, and that conflict is what makes your life. And we are, as drug users, we're against some very, very strong structures. So with the criminal justice system, the structure is going to win almost every time. And, you know, so when I've been in jail, my agency has been like, uh, very constrained. You know, I can't go anywhere. I can't do anything. But what I can do is I can decide to trade the chicken dinner that they're going to serve us on Thursday to somebody else. And, and sharing food around will mean there's all these huge dudes who are going to be mad if I get beat up and, and sent to the medical facility and then they don't get their chicken dinner. You know what I'm saying? Like that was my agent to protect myself through sharing food or something like that. So it's like, even even when those structures are down on you, you try and find these little moments of, of agency where you can punch through. But fundamentally, your question is like, um, would anybody in the same situation? I don't think it's I don't think it's that. 
Yeah, I don't think it's that. I don't think we're all um, just uh, um, sailing on 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 the fates winds, you know. Like I think we have something to say about it, uh, but how that all comes out, I yeah, I don't know. I, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not sure. I just, I just have seen in myself and everybody else and all the history I know, it's that struggle between structure and agency. It's that, it's that dialectic. They're both happening. The structure affects your agency or agency changes the structure. It goes around and around in this, in this circle. And that's probably human history, right? I think it was Marx that said that human beings make their own history, but not under circumstances that they would necessarily choose or something like that. Yeah. Um, and so speaking of that, I was just wondering how how hopeful are you for the future in this case? Are you are you, are you hopeful, optimistic, cynical? How, how do you how are you viewing the future? Uh, well, my dad used to say that I'm a pessimist, but I I think that nobody's a pessimist who fights for social change. Like if you think you can change the world, there must be a belief that you can. Like you wouldn't do it for no reason. So the fact that I'm engaged in, in social movements and struggles to, to change things means that somewhere in me, I do believe it's possible. And I have seen it, and it is like ahistoric to think that nothing changes. So I do believe things change. It's just aggravating how fucking slow they change and how people will just let the bodies stack up and keep the same laws in place. And I know that um, all the drug user activists and the people I met in Glasgow when I was there – they're, I know they're, I know they're feeling that, you know, and um, I know that when, when you see a, 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 a public health emergency like COVID come in and you're already dealing with a public health emergency, like, like drug deaths, and you see people in government are willing to change the whole world for COVID, but they weren't willing to change hardly nothing for the drug deaths. And there's still more of us that die from the drug deaths right now than COVID, at least in the drug user community. Um, you kind of, you gotta, you gotta be a little frustrated at that, but you gotta remember too, that the changes that the government have made from COVID show that anything's possible, right? Like, like that, that the way things are right now is not a natural state. It's not the end of history. It's just the decisions of a bunch of human beings who are in power and those decisions can be changed and wiped out and those people can become irrelevant, you know? Mm. Um, what, what advice would you give someone who's struggling with addiction now? Oh, um, <laughs> I know it's maybe, uh, that's maybe a, a, yeah, it's a broad like, question. Like, find your people, you know? Like, find people that you can, that can be your comrades in this. It's a fucking struggle, right? Like, you got to try, I know we're all keeping social distance right now and stuff, but ultimately you got to try to not use alone because that's where people die. Most people who die, uh, drug deaths and overdoses and stuff, they die alone inside somewhere, you know? So, um, get Narcan, get Naloxone, you know, it's out there, get Naloxone, learn how to use it to protect you and your friends and then train other people to do it. And the, by doing that or, or fight for something better in your community, like a better methadone program or a, or a safe injection site, a dr drug consumption room or something like that, because that fight itself gives you a little bit of that feeling of self self control or, or, or self determination. Like you're pushing back against these structures and that's really good. You know, that's good for your soul. 
So yeah, that's what I would say. And yeah, just try and try and use safer. Like, um, you know, like it was important to me to find dealers who I could not exactly trust, but I knew, okay, this product is really consistent. These people, like I have a human relationship with this person. Um, and I nurture that relationship because it was important to me. You know, I'm not going to tell people to go get on methadone or get off drugs or nothing because like, I, you know what? I didn't want to hear that. Like it wasn't helpful to me to have people scolding me about this shit and um, people are going to find their own way, but they got to be alive to find their way through, through the world. Um, you know, so that's, that's the key thing and finding your people, you know, finding other drug users who are your comrades. That's really, that's really helpful. And you, then you don't feel so alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about advice for people who want to help those, um, those in need? Um, we pretty much the same or no, you, the, the, those, the, those, those people are great. They can, they can learn naloxone too. I think everybody in Scotland should learn naloxone. You know, so if you have a friend that's a drug, a drug user and you're worried about them, just don't, don't give them the lecture. You know, they, they're, we're already got that on repeat inside our head. You know, that MP3 has been rolling for most of our lives, so we don't need to hear it. Um, but also like just, just recognizing that it's, it's not easy to just stop using it. It's not a question of will. Um, if someone that, you know, has been on methadone for a long time, like shaming them to get off it or something like that is not helpful either. Uh, it's like, there's, there's so, there's people that I, that I know who've gotten across the rainbow to this magical world of abstinence and they love it there. And that's really great for them. And I, like, I have close friends who are in that situation. Right. And but I think they've come to realize through me and other people that it's just not possible. Everyone doesn't make it there. A lot of people don't make it there and it's a very high standard to hold. So if the standard is abstinence, we're, it's too high and we're going to see a lot of people who just can't make it and they just fall away. Right. And so we've got to have a place for people who are using now or on methadone. Now that less than abstinence place without without rejecting abstinence, like if that works for people, that is good. But um, it's a, it's a very difficult standard. And the fact that it is this such a cherished standard in Scotland, as it has been here where I live too, it's like this almost, um, there's almost this, you can almost feel the church in there somewhere. Uh, And it's just like, I, 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 I think we need to, de um dethrone it a little bit like that like that it can't be it can't be this thing that's above us all all the time uh looming as a specter like i still have the little uh 12-step sponsor that lives in the back of my mind that tells me all of these great political thoughts i've been saying are just rationalizations or just excuses to use drugs or something like that so it's it's very hard to undo some of those scripts and um but I'll tell you one last thing, because I have been trashing abstinence a little bit, it'll sound like, uh, is that the 12-step the groups are, are great because it's all us. There's no other person in charge. You know, it's, it's all us. And so the idea of us as peers coming together to decide to do something is great and to share experiences and to share something that we do together other than using drugs I, I, so I found that a really positive aspect about it. I just think there's, there's more and uh, we have to make room for the more than abstinence.
where, where can people where can people follow you follow updates of what you're doing and listen to the podcast as well podcast the website is crackdownpod.com and it's also on you know like uh spotify stitcher itunes all the places you get your podcasts um i'm on twitter at garth mullins and you can f- follow me there I, I tweet about all kind of stuff and um yeah, and, and please subscribe to the podcast. Uh, we have a Patreon, too, if you're feeling that you really like what you hear. Mm. Um, that's Crackdown Pod at, at Patreon. Perfect. Um, well, thank you very much for taking the time. It, it means a lot. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, the, the reason, actually, I, I emailed you is I read something. It was a university lecturer who challenged his students to, if they wanted to speak to someone, they should go to like the, the person, the highest person they they think will be what's the word i'm trying to look for the person they maybe don't the the person who you're aiming higher than you would usually to try Mm -hmm. and answer questions and that that was basically why i thought you would be the best person for this so it was a a great great privilege to have you on i'm really flattered yeah i mean um we have a lot of unanswered emails where we ask like prime ministers and stuff yeah. <laughs> for interviews, you know? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Thanks. I mean, I, I what I noticed when I was in Glasgow um, and I, I guess I was in Leith for uh, uh, a little while while I was there, but I wasn't in, in Edinburgh so much um, except the train station. Uh, I, I really noticed how, how many people there are that want to fix things and have really good ideas about what to do and are ready to do it and have lived the life. And it's like, all they need is to be like given the same platform or be in the same room or find this, find each other and then decide to take the next step. You know, and I think it's like that for a lot of people here in Canada too, but it, the, the more platforms like what you're doing that are there, it helps people find each other. Like this is an unanticipated consequence of the crackdown podcast is that we kind of made this little network, this little community, or, or it's actually quite big uh, constituency of people um, in Canada and North America around the world. And um, you know, uh, that's, that's a really good thing. So I, I like, I applaud you for doing this. Uh, and it, it's, it's a lot of work. Uh, and the last thing I would say is um, it, it can be incredibly sad um, because you, you end up, losing people that you are close to and you also end up if if you've lived this life you end up reflecting on things that you had intentionally forgotten like since i started doing this podcast i've just remembered all kind of chapters of my life that i had clearly at the time slammed the door on the second they were over um so that's that's a, that's a piece of emotional work too well Thank you very much for taking the time. And next time you're in Scotland, you'll need to you know, let me know and we'll catch up. I'll pay back and buy a pint or something like that. Uh, cheers. Yeah, that would be great. That would be great. I, I, I would like to I would like to come back there. In fact, I was trying to angle to get there for a conference that was supposed to happen, I don't know, in a couple of months from now, but I think that it won't actually happen in, in real life, you know, so it's going to be right. a while. I, I'd love yeah. that. Thanks. Yeah. Take care. Yeah, good luck with the project. Last guest is a drop-in services coordinator at Crew2000. Previously, she spent seven years as a young person support worker and trainer on gender-based violence issues for black ethnic minority children and young people. Prior to that, she worked as a community development worker in central Scotland. So here's my conversation with Lisa Rigby.
Thank you very much for joining me. I realise it's probably quite precious time right now with the sun. It's been like this all week, you know, and whenever I've got to work, it's going to be beautiful outside. Um, so how are you um, coping with um, COVID? Are you managing okay? I'm doing okay, yeah. Uh, interesting juggling, uh, working, uh, almost full time. I've gone down a little bit in my hours, a bit of flexible working, which I think may be likely to continue given the the recommendations um, coming out with the phases and the roadmap, but uh, and I also have a wee one as well at home, so that's been fun. <laughs> Trying to homeschool and kind of try and share that with my partner, and he's also trying to work as well. So yeah, it's um, it's interesting, but yeah, I I've got a lot to be thankful for. And uh, how do you think you mentioned the government there? How do you think the government are handling it? What does the Scottish government start with? Sure. Um, I mean, in terms of what's coming out from the Scottish government, personally, I, I wouldn't want to be in their shoes, of course. Uh, I think I get the impression that the information that they're trying to give us is as clear as they can make it. Um, and OK, if you look at the, the government website about, say, like the, the roadmap recently, um, it's I think it's been simple enough that other organisations have been able to to kind of like uh, present the information in whatever way is best for them. So actually there's a few kind of uh, versions of the roadmap that are floating around, especially in the third sector, um, that kind of just present it in a slightly different way, even if it's in a, a table with different colours and kind of makes it quite easy to follow, actually. It's been uh, quite useful. So it makes sense. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean... I think it's quite interesting for me as a, as a community worker, actually being in my local community and of course talking to my neighbours about what's going on and getting their take on what they think is 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 working, is good, what's staffed, you know, and and obviously this kind of kind of confusion over who should we be listening to, you know, are we, yeah. you know, are we listening to Nicola Sturgeon and we listening to Boris Johnson? Are both kind of like concurrently. Uh, the law or guidance, or yeah, it's yeah a bit confusing. Who who would you rather listen to? Oh, I think you know, <laughs> it, it, Nicola Sturgeon. I'm you know, but I'm not a party political person at all, actually. But um, I think she makes clearer sense. Uh, it's it's focused on what's happening here as well above the border, and that to me makes sense too because it's got to it's got to follow as much evidence as they can try and get hold of. So I think what, what has been suggested for Scotland is certainly what I'm kind of focusing on. And I know there's a lot of people in the, in the third sector who uh, are maybe glad that we are getting a bit more, at least uh, yeah, a bit more space to kind of plan uh, and work together as much as possible. Um, without, and I appreciate without a kind of punitive approach to how the whole thing is policed, because I also get the feeling that, you know, people are going to do what they're going to do. Uh, and we are being kind of afforded a, an amount of trust in what we've been told recently above the border that, you know, it's not going to be heavily policed. It's kind of over to you. Um, I kind of appreciate that. I know not everybody does, but um, I think it also kind of makes sure that people who are, you know, they're not able to, uh, for whatever reason, adhere to the guidance that they're not being fined, for example, and, you know, kind of, uh, yeah, given lots of debt because of stuff that's outside of their control.
Well, I think the thing is that I can I can completely understand how people might um, not quite get the rules or not quite understand them because are there some of them are fairly vague and a bit confusing and also like not a lot. I, there's a lot of people who just don't watch the news. Yeah, and and they won't watch the briefings every day, and that that's fair enough. So I don't I can't I don't get how you can impose fines on something that's so new. Yes. It's yeah. only been there like a couple of months, so it's, it's, yeah, yeah. I, I can I can understand why people might be, might get upset, but I can also understand why. I um, think that's a really a good point that you just made about the fact that like how people get the news as well. Yeah, has been an another element to this whole situation that is unique. You know, mm -hmm. you can look to previous pandemics or whatever, but nothing was in this technological age where our, our media, our sources of information are just so radically different. Uh, and they're usually, if it's like through your phone, it's the same portal with which you pick up all sorts of random theories and some, some of them fairly way out there. Some of them might be kind of, you know, fairly on the nail, but they can all be really distracting. Um, yeah. 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 Um, so how has um, COVID-19 affected um, people who use drugs? Well, in lots of different ways, I suppose. Um, the the organisation I work for, uh, Crew, uh, we, I suppose, are kind of like in one part of a, a wide network of people who are connected to communities of people who use drugs, uh, who, you know, yeah, I suppose how we can... Uh, understand what's going on uh, for different people as well. So people who are using different types of drugs in different types of settings, uh, who have got uh, other um, challenges, uh, like physically with the safety if they have uh, a home to stay in or safe accommodation, uh, mental health issues, um, all sorts of other things. So um, from what I understand, because of where I work and uh, our connected kind of networks, if you like, um, uh, I suppose uh, we understand that uh, people are being affected in, in how they're able to source their drugs, um, how often they've been using drugs. This is more often people who have used drugs before seems to be kind of a, a, a common theme, but certainly for a lot, and that's a lot of people. Um, uh, and certainly a lot of people are, yeah, they, their use has changed, how often they're using has changed, how much they're using when they are taking uh, anything uh, has changed. Uh, as I say, the availability, maybe the, the, the quantity and the quality of what they're accessing has, has changed as well. Um, yeah, I mean, cause a lot of people who we've chatted to who, or who we know who might source illicit drugs, particularly, um, a lot of that is face-to-face -face interactions. So obviously that's all getting impacted because of, uh, well, two things actually, I suppose, because of fears of spreading coronavirus between people, but also because there's less people out in the streets, uh, there's another worry for, for, for dealers of being caught because I suppose you're that much more exposed. Um, so yeah, it's interesting. And. Um, so how is your typical, how's your day changed? What did your day look like before and now how's it changed after, during lockdown? Uh, well, massively. Um, the part of uh, the service that I work in is, is a public facing service. We run a drop in service every afternoon. So we would have literally 
at, well, at this time, especially with this weather, the door would be open and we would have people coming into a city central space to chat with us or we could hang out in the street and chat with people. Um, if people would be coming in to chat about, um, you know, their use of drugs, if they having, haven't taken something, taking something, their concerns or planning to just want to get some information, uh, blood-borne virus testing. Um, and that was done through a dry blood spot testing, so like a finger prick. Um, but uh, it was something that we've kind of started relatively recently, I suppose. But that's kind of been becoming more steady, I suppose, as, as people are kind of like, you know, spreading the word about our service, which is free, is very informal. Um, pregnancy testing also. So, yeah. Uh, and of course, C-card. A lot of people coming into condoms. Uh, and all of that has had to stop because we cannot be in that space. Um, yeah, it's, it's been hugely frustrating. We have been able to carry on some things. Um, for example, like the free condoms that we, that we work with C-Card with. So that's the NHS Lothian and uh, Healthy Respect. We, with their endorsement, um, have been giving out bags of sealed trays of condoms. And generally we've been taking them to homeless hostels and right. to places where you know, we know that money is going to be an issue for accessing uh, condoms, that access to online services is very difficult. Um, but, you know, people may still need to get hold of safer sex items. So we're just making sure that we can provide it in a safer way. It's obviously it's all wiped down and everything first. So, so we've been able to do that. Um, and the other side of our work, where I work in the drop-in, we didn't just meet with uh, young people in the space. We would go out to different youth agencies and often work in partnership with, uh, I don't know if I should get about naming people, but certainly we'd be working with certain schools and, um, as I say, kind of like youth support agencies, often with vulnerable young people to just look at life skills, you know, uh, but specifically around uh, drugs harm reduction, sexual health, mental health, and centrally uh, set and setting. So kind of like just a basic simple tool to look at kind of risk assessing where you are in relation to what you do. Um, and that's, that's a part of the job that I love. And it's been made really, really difficult because a lot of the connection and the rapport that you get with young people, especially when they don't know you uh, and you've got a very short amount of time in which to, to connect with people. Um, and that body language is a lot it really is, is is a kind of large part obviously of how you can communicating with people and they can see your body language in a perceived 3d kind of way we ha i have been carrying on some of that work uh with uh, some of the groups that we've established and it's been it's been challenging it's been really you know obviously very different we're all on screens like this so you can only see this amount of a person you can't yeah, that kind of, you know, perception of being in a room with somebody and that kind of silent body language conversation that's going on, you lose a good amount of that. Um, and we've also, I've also noticed uh, that there's more likelihood young people are, they're being asked to be on screen. And that's a very different thing to being in a room. I suppose, you know, the equivalent might be a young person who's feeling a bit self-conscious might come in stick their hood up you know sat hunched there and that's fine 
they can still be there I, and you can still get a sense of um, how you're connecting with them and uh, essentially for myself as well just to be avoiding things like uh, triggers or topics that could be uh, triggering for them you know just just to kind of get a sense of that but um, the equivalent now is that uh, in some groups maybe uh, a young person won't turn their screen on so you'll see their name and you're checking in verbally and occasionally you'll get a yeah yeah, oh yeah I'm here. <laughs> and that's fine but but it makes it uh, even more tricky to make sure that you're not you know um, un unintentionally triggering somebody you, you, you're not getting that kind of cue so um, yeah it's <laughs> a lot of changes in yeah <laughs> And so when the when the drop-in was open, how what did what did a typical person look like? Was it very varied, or was there a specific demographic that would usually come in? Uh, I mean, it was hugely varied, but I'd say if you looked at the majority of people coming in, um, more than any other group, it was eighteen to twenty-fives uh, was kind of like the largest demographic. Very often, students. Um, uh, very often, uh, you know, quite involved in some kind of scene, maybe a dance scene, a party scene. Um, so some experience of drug use, uh, interest in, in sexual health, uh, generally quite open and wanting to chat, uh, but uh, uh, not all the time. And we did get, I'd say, a, a fair percentage of people coming in who who were coming in specifically because they wanted support. Um, there was usually, uh, commonly, a mental health concern that was kind of like a central thing talked about, um, maybe with connecting issues around uh, drugs um, and other things around their safety too. Um, yeah. Um. And well, I suppose that, that's also something that I, I, maybe people forget when when you think of drug charity. I think a lot of people will think of um, problematic drug users, but what you're saying there about students, it might um, it, it could just be a lot of um, recreational use, and they're just not they've never taken anything maybe, and they're just wanting some advice around that. Mm -hmm. Is yeah. that is that is it more so that, or is it about fifty fifty? Uh, I think it's changed actually for a while. I think. Um we maybe see more people towards the problematic kind of uh, areas of conversation now um, as there's more and more information available online. Mm -hmm. So I'd say there's maybe a, a, a not insignificant uh, part of the demographic that might make up the majority of people coming into the drop-in who, who are very tech savvy. You know, they're very, you know, it's, it's easy to pick up a phone or a tablet or a laptop and just get the information that they're looking for directly including from ourselves as well obviously because we've got a website and we do lots of stuff on social media uh, and through ourselves or you know just might, might know of these other places anyway there's like the loop there's um, drugs and me there's there's quite a lot of really uh, concise I think uh, drugs harm reduction websites so there's maybe in some ways less of a need maybe for that that person, that typical person, if you like, yeah. to physically walk in the door, we might see them more often for the condoms because, right. you know, if they know they can get them for free, uh, I'd say there's probably more people who are, you know, they'll use the opportunity that they're in town, 
on a, a work from break or they've finished the lectures or whatever and they're, they're meeting somebody, they'll just pop into the drop-in en route to somewhere else and mm. pick up the supplies and go. Um, so bearing that in mind, I think over the last few years, we've, um, we've seen more people coming in through the doors, probably after walking up and down Coburn Street a number of times, mm. looking in the windows, thinking about, you know, that chat that they actually want to have or that question that they want to ask um, and uh, yeah and just one day thinking you know I was going to swear there but I don't know if I should swear. Yeah, so I, I could sense I could sense I knew exactly what you were going to say um, the, last, the last two interviews I've had they have sworn a lot and I've just okay. kind of made my peace with it so okay. um, yeah sorry um, yeah fuck it I'm going to go in yeah. so uh, yeah uh, I, and obviously that that aspect is a, another thing that's been impacted by COVID as well. Mm -hmm. You know, that uh, <laughs> I think people are kind of like, they're online all the time. But I, I don't know about you, but I'm online most of the time. Yeah. And I suppose when I, when I want to think about how I'm feeling, like how I'm really feeling, or if I'm having a bit of a down moment, you know, um, one of my uh, wants is to put down my phone or get away from the screen. Um, I need to have some time to myself or connect with another person. And I'm lucky that I've got people that I live with, uh, one who I can talk to about stuff, you know, enormously lucky. Um, and for people who don't have that at the moment, that's what we, that's what we could provide before. You know, yeah. we, we, we could be impartial. We weren't your flatmate, we weren't your partner, we weren't a family member. Uh, but we were physically there, you could come in, have a cup of tea, and we could just have a, a relaxed talk about whatever you want to. Um, and we had more people coming in for that reason over the last few years, building up more so than others, really. Um, yeah, and, and that's really the bit that we can provide at the moment. At the moment, obviously, we're looking yeah. at trying to, we're trying to get back, but it's uh, tricky. Mm -hmm. well, one of the other questions I was thinking of was, so in in this episode, in, in the middle, I've put the, the drug documentary I filmed uh, three or four years ago. It was a while, wasn't it? Yeah. And that would have been my first, that was my first time in crew. And obviously I interviewed you. And I was curious, since then, have you seen any big changes in maybe drug use trends is there or is there anything that people maybe should know about now just to give it safer sure uh, uh certainly certainly uh i'd say probably one of the biggest changes if not the biggest change has been the use of cocaine um uh yeah over the last three or four years um there has been almost an exponential increase in the number of uh people coming into crew uh, accessing our counseling services specifically around cocaine um, and that's, that's been kind of documented, not just at Crew, but I think because Crew focuses on stimulant drugs, uh, cannabis, uh, other recreational drugs outside of opiates and benzos as well, more, maybe more so than some other established services um, across the cities of Scotland, uh, it's certainly been very, very visible to ourselves, uh, and we've had quite a lot of referrals. So I, I've talked to a lot of people over the years uh, in the drop-in as well, and younger people too. Uh, I'd say that the kind of, I don't know, 
you don't wish to kind of like create an image of somebody mm -hmm. who you know x y and z but i would have said uh four or five years ago talk somebody talking about cocaine i might maybe expect them to in, in a as in a problematic uh use kind of way uh i would expect to be a bit older maybe 30s over um that's not changed massively but certainly i think maybe the the younger end of that you're, you're looking at oh, we're talking to people in the late teens um who have been talking about problematic use to the point where they're starting to get a uh, physical damage to the septum um mm -hmm. yeah it's kind of things that i i i wasn't fully expecting to hear at this point so uh yeah, that's been a, one of the biggest changes. And, and uh, sadly, it has kind of made itself um, very uh, present on the drug-related deaths stats that came out. Um, the most recent ones where you had almost 1,200 people uh, uh, dying after um, uh, being killed by drugs. Um, yeah, cocaine, the, 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 I suppose the increase is something like i don't know hundreds of percent it's like two three four hundred percent greater than they had been previously obviously there's a lot of poly drug use involved there but cocaine is 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 very much more present and crew crew specifically what um what's the main purpose of crew well our raison d'etre i suppose overall is to reduce the amount of drug related harms and we largely try to do that through education uh through open sharing of information um to try and reduce stigma about talking about drugs uh, and realizing that a lot of people do take drugs who do not have problematic use issues um and just kind of like opening that out i suppose broadening i suppose maybe what recovery means because i know for, for, for a lot of people recovery is about you know i suppose maybe moving away from drug use uh looking at um different types of uh lifestyles different things that they can take on in their you know uh, for well-being um but yeah i think because we see maybe a kind of younger slightly younger contingent uh than other services uh that deal with people that are I think at a much kind of sharper end of things, generally. Um, yeah, I think things like mental health, we talk a lot about mental health with young people, kind of stress. Um, but people who are still actively uh, involved in uh, going out and partying, clubbing, or, you know, who are using drugs for many, many different reasons. So, um, yeah, I think education. For some people talking about prevention, I wouldn't say that prevention is a large label that we have. Uh, it's certainly useful to talk about in terms of reducing risk because it does reduce risk if but but that is uh that is something i think would be a, a useful byproduct by us putting education out there and somebody making their own decision that actually i'm going to do something different that you know and it's fully their choice um then then obviously that's reducing risks but uh, yeah hopefully that's answered your question <laughs> yeah no it has, it has. Um, <laughs> and you mentioned the the horrible amount of deaths in, in scotland so what what do you think needs to change i think the things that are changing slowly 
but uh, they are shifting a bit and could do with being quicker is, is how we talk about drugs. Um, just making it, making it open. I think there's a lack of voices of people who uh, are directly affected. Um, and by that, I think, yes, people who have had difficult times with the drugs and things like, I suppose, like Scottish Recovery Consortium and other people who are very, you know, they're driven by their members, they're driven by people who are speaking from lived experience. But I think also having voices of people with living experience uh, and all sorts of voices. So people who can inform policy, who they're not just, you know, poster people for one particular type of message. It's actually listening to people with all sorts of different experiences when it comes to drugs, uh, legal, illicit, whatever, people who may not have any particular issues with their drug use, but still have expertise about it and should be able to talk about it without being stigmatized, um, but should be listened to and, and fully considered. I think there needs to be maybe a, a wider uh, type of person there, uh, more voices included. And there's been, well, I've mentioned a lot about um, safe consumption rooms. Um, and it, just, it seems to me like it's been been spoken about for years and it just, it just ne it still never happened. And I was just wondering, what, what's your view on these rooms? Do you think that's a good starting point? Do you think they're effective or they'd be effective here? Uh, I think, I mean, from what I understand, uh, uh, consumption rooms, drug consumption rooms or safer consumption rooms, uh, I think they've been largely agreed upon within... I suppose the academic uh, community, the frontline work community, uh, having directly seen how they have positively impacted on the number of drug-related deaths in, in places like the States and in, in Europe as well. There's direct correlation, uh, kind of irrefutable proof that they reduce overdoses. So that's that's never a bad thing. So I think um, everybody kind of involved in, in the work that, that that I'm involved in as well, would be keen to have uh, movement, um, very keen to have movement uh, and less red tape um, and politicking going on around it, which is, I think, the main reason why it's just not happened. It's been, it's been dragged into, into, into politics, um, sadly. So, uh, but hopefully that will change. I know things, there's been, you know, the pilot in Glasgow and, a lot of people kind of set up and ready to go for quite a long time. Um, so that's not changed. I know that people will be pushing it as much as they can. <laughs> Given the circumstances, that is going to be more difficult. But people at the moment are being extremely creative. I've just actually been listening to a, a Scottish Drugs Forum seminar. So And they've been running various seminars, lots of uh, fantastic seminars out there by different organisations, sharing a lot of the... Um, the quick thinking and creativity and flexibility that people have, particularly in the drug sector, and particularly I think this this area of work where you're working with a lot of people who they're not typical service users. They're not kind of like walking into, you know, I mean, they're quite hidden populations, I suppose. You know, whilst there's a stigma about talking about drugs, people might off, mightn't share that information a lot of the time or. Or if it's people who have got a lot of uh, challenges, they might be homeless, they might be kind of like very transient and not have those kind of markers or 
or trust as well. I mean, things like trauma as well. Um, you know, the, the, the trust that you have to have before kind of sharing information about yourself or walking and talking to a stranger in a, in a service. So, um, but yeah, people are doing some really interesting things. So I, I don't doubt that people will be thinking widely about how, how consumption rooms could also still work in the time of COVID. How, how do you view how do you view the future? Are you optimistic or pessimistic? Uh, I don't think you could work in the voluntary sector if you were pessimistic. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, obviously, you know, proceed with caution, uh, mm. and you can, and you can become a little sceptical, or even sometimes a bit cynical. I try not to be cynical. It, it, it'd be easy to fall into that pattern, uh, but. Um, but there are a lot of people doing some excellent work and there are grassroots things that, you know, kind of like uh, campaigns, uh, information sites that things like, I suppose, uh, kind of information revolution in some ways is, mm. is being enabled. I mean, they're, they're not without their fights as well. Um, for example, I mean, we, uh, there's a, a thing called the trip report that uh, actually one of our volunteers um, uh, puts together every week and it's fab it's uh, just having a look at different things being tested um, across the country across Europe and looking at the more unusual kind of testing results um, mm. plug for him I should say the trip report check out it's on medium.com he also has a patreon and should be supported to carry on um, but yeah it's it's a really really straightforward interesting look at, um, at drug testing results drug checking results um but you know it will get taken off of certain social media platforms on occasion i don't think there's like a massive surprise to him but uh, but yeah because it's sharing information health, health um, harm reduction information that mentions drugs in a way that's adult you know in, in a way that's mature and isn't ticking people off and saying no 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 you shouldn't do this uh, and so it's been kind of a uh, um, you know, an algorithm has picked it up as as breaking some kind of, you know, contravening mm. some kind of rule and taking it off. And you're like, well, this is the kind of information that is actually, you know, it's homegrown. It's peer to peer. So um, it's, almost, it's almost like they're, they're doing the opposite of what they're trying to do, because if they take something like that down, which is like information, it's fact and it's science, but then they'll leave up um, conspiracy theories and um unpro a lot of unproven like fake misinformation and stuff like that so it's sure it's, it's almost ironic what they're doing there it yeah i think it's i mean at the same time I, I'm, I'm talking about facebook because i'm old <laughs> but the people who we work with are some of the folks who we work with i think have got a lot of nous and ability to be able to kind of navigate other areas of the internet that are less able to be censored or kind of mm. manipulated in a way and that has great potential but of course there's a lot of young people who who know you know they don't know anything about uh end-to-end -end encryption or you know or different ways of connecting and sharing information a lot of people don't have access to the internet a lot of people don't have the tech at all and so you know that they're, they're they're left behind uh and they're made vulnerable if they're using drugs uh, then obviously they're not, you know, maybe not getting the, the full, the rich enough information that 
they deserve to be able to kind of make their own choices about things but they're being left behind in the technological sense as well you know their opportunities as well uh, are dwindling as well so they're they're becoming even more vulnerable um, mm. and conversely as well when it comes to coping with all of this uh, again puts them at even greater risk around around their drug use if they're using drugs mm. or coming across drugs so um it's challenging yeah yeah um, so what advice would you give um, someone who might be watching or listening to this who is struggling with addiction or um, just needing some information around their drug use? Yeah, sure. Um, well, there are spaces out there and people uh, like ourselves um, that are more than happy to chat about things. And the last thing we're ever going to do is make any kind of judgment about a person uh, because of what they do and what they say. Um, if somebody needs to come online, which at the moment is largely online, uh, but not solely, uh, they can do so. Uh, so, for example, is it all right if I plug our drop-in? Yeah, of course um, so. I mean, uh, on most afternoons, uh, 1 till 5 or 3 till 7 on a Thursday, uh, we have a, a, a drop-in. So you can, call, well, you can uh, email drop-in at crew2000.org.uk. Um, and you'll get somebody coming back to you to say, do you want to have a chat online? Do you want to type? Or, you know, we can text you back and we can have a text conversation or we can call you back and we can have a phone conversation. We can set up a video call, whatever you like, you know. Um, what is it you want to find out? If it's about drugs, if it's about sex, if it's about sexuality, if it's about uh, mental health, if it's whatever is concerning you. Um, yeah get in touch with us and uh, we can certainly chat with people signpost uh, and we're not the only people as well there are other services as well we do a lot of signposting too um, you know there's apps I suppose there's a lot of free phone lines um, things like uh, Shout uh, or there's another one is it um, it's Kush not Kush mm -hmm. it sounds a little drug related but it's like yeah. K-O-O-S-H or something right. like that yeah, I'll have to look that one up. Can I send you a link? Maybe you can put yeah, them up there. Yeah, yeah that'd be good. So there's, um, yeah, and there's like the mix as well for kind of like up to 25s too. And um, yeah, but you don't have to shoulder anything on your own and you're not alone. You know, if mm. you're if you're concerned about your, your drug use, uh, you're probably with quite a lot of other people. We did a, a survey over April um, along with other organizations across Europe um, and the results that we got back after April and we had uh, I don't know it was a few hundred people getting in touch with us uh, from all over the place actually and mm -hmm. it was it was common that most people responding were saying that their drug use in some way had changed they were generally taking more um, they were generally maybe taking more when they were using um, you know, there was lots of other concerns around there as well. Uh, alcohol use had gone up quite considerably and that's been reflected in most of the other surveys, some of the ones that are ongoing at the moment as well. So, so certainly I'd say, you know, don't feel like you're on your own. Please do reach out for help and you'll get supported and you'll get believed and heard. You won't be judged. Um, yeah. And what about on the other side then lastly, um, for anyone who's either maybe they know someone or someone in their family, or just in general, if they're just wanting to um, help people in these tricky situations, what advice would you give them? Sure. 
Well, um, I mean, for themselves, if they want to have some uh, support as well, that's what Crew uh, and a lot of the other organisations are there for too. It's, it's for anybody who's got any concerns, if it's for somebody else and wants to support. Um, I think being kind to ourselves and each other as much as we can at any time, but especially now, uh, is is important. I think it can be frightening for people to to be worried about somebody who whose use of drugs feels problematic or is very evidently problematic. Um, and I'd say that this is the same as anything. I mean, if you treat, treat it like any kind of like health health issue or, you know, a concern that you've got for your friend or a loved one to say, look, if you ever want to talk about it, you know, maybe there's been harsh words in the past and I know people can feel, you know, that maybe they've said things out of worry or anger in the past or frustration. If they are able to say, look, I'm going to put that away. Just if you just want to talk, I'll not say anything. Just talk. Tell me how you're feeling. And, you know, just 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 leave it at that. Um, you know, just it's difficult for people wanting to say, but please change. And I can see if you're hurting yourself or whatever. But I think the act in allowing somebody just to talk, uh, if they are able to talk, is is an essential first step. So somebody feels like they're being heard. Um, and maybe some, maybe it's something that you can do more than often, like once a week or something, and, and getting to the habit of that. Because I think that for a lot of people, it's that reconnection that can make them feel like their, their self-worth is back a little bit, you know, that they can reconnect to somebody, that somebody is actually listening to them with no judgment. I think that that, it's not always the key to everything. Obviously, things are very con complex, but I think it's a useful first step. And will that be a nice um, place to finish? So thank you very much for your time. Um, hopefully, hopefully the next time we see each other be in person during a shift or something like that. That'd be nice. Yeah. Now, I did contact various people who are opposed to more lenient approaches to drug policy, such as past government officials and the Home Office. The Home Office actually seemed keen for an interview, however, after telling them my modest viewing figures, they suddenly didn't have the time. But they did provide a statement which reads, Illegal drugs devastate lives and communities, which are com we are committed to tackling drug misuse, and as a part of this, the government held a UK-wide drug summit in Glasgow earlier this year, bringing together drug recovery experts, health professionals, government ministers and senior police officers to discuss the most effective ways to do so. The result of this review was basically more enforcement is needed, with the government now committing £5 million on top of £20 million announced in October to increase activity against gangs traffic, trafficking drugs across county lines. They also pledged to boost police resources with an additional 20,000 officers. Now what has that got to do for those suffering now? Does that save lives? Very little, if any. Why are we not focusing first on those who are dying needlessly? To be fair, another review is scheduled to focus on prevention, treatment and recovery, but again, we're missing the point. We've been fighting the same war for over 50 years trying to prevent people from using drugs. It doesn't fucking work. People will always use drugs, so would you rather have more people dying and in prison for non-violent offences or the opposite? It's that simple. So, UK government and Scottish government, if you do not do something that isn't more law enforcement like you've been doing for the past 50 years, more and more people will die. This is a problem of politics. Politicians are so focused on the next four years or however much they have left of their terms, all their focus is going to be on what's going to get them re-elected. So why do you think climate change is a massive problem but little is being done to solve it? Because that's future us's problem. The end of the world isn't happening right now. Oh, 
Well, it is. So let's not wait for the next worldwide crisis to act. Lives were needlessly lost during the coronavirus pandemic because governments did not listen to the warnings. And people are dying now due to climate change because governments are not listening. And lives have been lost and will continue to be lost due to drug misuse because governments are not listening. So I urge you to act. Write to your local MP or the government to force their hand to act in a way that isn't killing more people and putting more people in prison for non-violent offences. So that's drug policy in context. I want to thank my guests, Reddy Yates, Garth Mullins and Lisa Rigby, and thank you for watching. Please like and subscribe. It genuinely does mean a lot. I also have a Patreon, so if you think this show is worth something, it would be greatly appreciated if you could contribute. Please, if you can't afford this, don't worry. Your view is enough to keep this show going. So thank you for watching and stay safe.